no one knows what, what's going to happen next. No one. And no one knows what position you're going to be in, either through your own good fortune or misfortune. But the thing you can control is, are you moving toward that spectrum on those classical virtues when you're in those moments of achievement or when you're in those moments of abject failure is, can you be wise? Can you be courageous? Can you be just? Can you be modest in those moments? That's where your free will, that's where the choice that you do have. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Cubicle Athlete. On today's episode, we have Rob Biasati, who was a teacher and coach and is now currently the dean of students at one of the top, if not the top, high school athletic programs in the country. That's St. Thomas Aquinas High School. Rob has personally coached many high school athletes that went on to become professional athletes, mainly in the NFL. He was also one of my favorite teachers when I attended St. Thomas, and it was an honor to have him on the podcast. So without further ado, let's start the show. All right, cool. We're recording. So we have Rob Biasati on the podcast today, who's a teacher of mine in high school uh, 15, 20 years ago. Always knew him as a very motivational guy, great teacher. He's now the Dean of Students at St. Thomas Aquinas. And uh, yeah, really excited to have you on the podcast today, man. Eric, I can't tell you, like... You're reaching out to me and just, you know, just before we had a little conversation before the podcast began and, and, and bringing back so many great memories of that time period of 2000 to 2005. So I'm really glad to be here. Thank you. so, And I'm honored to thank you so much. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for taking the time. So as I was saying, I'd love to get started with your origin story, just how you, I mean, how you got to where you are today and who you are today. I think, um, first of all, I want to talk about my parents for a second. Both of my parents they were hippies. They graduated high school in the late sixties and they had me at a very young age. And, and even though that my parents, I would classify them as hippies, like the Woodstock type, they still kind of like raised me very traditionally, even though they were hippies, which I always found like, I don't think I ever heard my parents like even use profanity. Um, not, not because of any kind of like a moral stance against it. I think that they were trying to raise me in a way they thought they should raise me instead of like a, who they were in other words. But, my dad was a huge fan of anything like football and basketball. I mean, anything. And um, I mean, this is going to sound crazy, but I can remember at six or seven him putting a basketball in my hand and showing me the proper form and how, you know, the greats, probably the, the greats that he would define as the Boston Celtics, like a John Havlicek or um, I forget who's in the, logo, the NBA logo, but that guy, how they would shoot a jump shot. And then that's how... I mean, I was trained like that from six or seven, like this is the form. And then he coached me. And I think it was interesting because I don't think I'm a very good athlete. And when I say that is if you were to ask me to go bowling right now, or even when I was 18 or 19, I think my, my, anybody in my family, including my wife, could beat me at bowling, pick up a golf club, or even go water skiing or anything like that. I'm pretty not good at it, but, uh, because I have to switch to my mom for a second because my dad was very demanding. And then when I couldn't do something, obviously I would cry or something when I was young, six to 10 or 11. And my mom would pull me aside and actually be the one when I couldn't do something to teach me how to like catch a ball or something. I could like clearly remember that. So just a funny story about my dad and how, how tough he was on me. He coached one of, the, one of my 
like crazy moments as like a nine or 10 year old was when sitting around their table. And at those days in the seventies, you had a draft where all the coaches in the, in the little leagues would draft their players. And you had, so it was just like a regular NBA draft rounds one through whatever. So, you know, the expectation that for me was I'd be a first round draft choice in my house and come to find out on the dinner tables that my dad drafted someone else with his first round pick. <laughs> no way. <laughs> and he drafted me second round. Oh my God. And then for a day or so, I wasn't even on his team. And he had to trade like rounds three and four to get me, to get me on his team. And so I was crying, you know, at the dinner table, like, I can't even believe this guy, you know. I mean, there's, there's story after story about that. And I love my, listen, my dad, he's a he's the greatest guy. We're, we're, we're best friends today, but you have to understand to really love him. But there's, there's stories like that over and over again throughout my life. Like um, my dad used to make me go practice in the fifth grade with the middle school girls basketball team. Like used to, I used to leave school and go practice with, with the eighth grade girls, stuff like that. My dad, um, when I got, when I got in my car accident in college, I was in a wheelchair and um, I'd broken both my legs and I'd been red shirted. I was playing basketball for Stetson. And my dad made me go from a hospital bed to a wheelchair back to college. He didn't, I mean, he wasn't like I was 18 or something like that. I mean, I wasn't, I didn't know what to do or not to do. He just said, you're going back. And I went back to college in a wheelchair. So that, that was my dad. But getting back to my mom, what was cruel about my mom is that even though if I wasn't good at something, like I was never good at catching a ball when I was young. My dad used to be like, they used to drive me crazy where he'd walk away from it. My mom would spend a couple hours and, you know, teach me how to catch. And then what happened is then is, and I'll shut up in a second, but what happened then is I learned really fast how to be good at what my dad wanted me to be good at. So that's why I say, I always get back to this whole thing about me, not really, even, I don't even watch sports today. I, 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 not because I don't love or not love, I watch St. Thomas sports, but I don't watch not because I don't love, I just, I'm not interested. If I'm not involved, I'm not interested. I'm, I'm interested in doing something well. I'm, I was interested in being a good jump shooter, period, period, end of story. Like that's, that's my, that's my deal. Like, and I think that comes from both my, my mom and my dad. So it wasn't even about playing basketball. It was like, man, I'm going to be, I'm going to be good at this because if I'm not, I'm going to have to face my dad and if I'm not, my mom's going to help me, but I'm going to try to avoid that, and I'm going to try to be good at it. My mom never even played. Like, my mom, like, my mom could care less about sports. Yeah. So it was more about picking something, doing it, and doing it the best you can, doing it well. It didn't matter if it was basketball or even, I mean, whatever it was. And you've said it a, a few times now, was the jump shot specifically. You're, you didn't really focus much on basketball as a whole. You, you're focused on the jump shot. Is that? That's been my whole life. I find a center of gravity. I find one center of gravity in any pursuit I do. So there might be like a, in, in, in teaching or being a dean or being a strength and conditioning coach, it might take me a couple of years, but I find that one thing, I narrow, everything else falls to the side. And I'm going to do that one, in my opinion, I'll try, I'll attempt to do that one thing very, very, probably at the, cost of a lot of other important things. If I look back at my basketball career, man, 
I really wish I would have worked on my ball handling and passing more than my jump shot because I probably didn't develop that as easily. So my, my, and my thought process as a basketball player was, hey, man, and I still think this, like not anymore, but I thought at the time, whether it was true or not, that I had the best jump shot in the world and that you're going to have to guard me. You're going to have to guard me. And if, and if you don't guard me, if you, if you come up and guard me, I'm going to go around. If you don't guard me, I'm going to have to jump shot. And there's some secondary things I did very well, but they were they were effort things that I was like playing defense, playing defense. You don't need to be a rocket scientist to play defense. Right. You just have to have the effort to want to do it. Now, being a good ball handler, that, that takes a lot of that practice. You know, not it's just not an effort thing. Passing well is just not an effort thing. Rebounding is an effort thing. So I had that one skill I was good at, and then I was good at the effort stuff. That's how I've kind of managed my career as well. Yeah. I, I want to go back to your dad not picking you first. And I, I think you said he picked you in the second round. Yeah. Do you think there was an intent there to like, like, Hey, I'm not going to, I'm not going to coddle you or I'm not going to, you're not just going to make the team cause you're my son. You think I don't want to, I do not want to portray my dad as some monster because there's always a method. My dad's a very calculating individual. If you met him today, <laughs> No one would ever, like, you can see me coming a mile away. I'm six foot three, 220 pounds. I walk like I'm an athlete, whatever. My dad's like 5'10, a buck 50. He's got red hair, or he did. You, you never see him coming, but this guy is more mentally strong for what he's been through in his life than anybody. So I'll, I'll tell you another story just so you understand my dad. Most people would think that this is the craziest thing you could ever say to a kid, but. I'm lying in a hospital bed, both legs broken, and um, I'm in intensive care. So I don't know. They, it was touch and go there for a while. And that's from your car accident. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm putting the insight into my dad. So my dad comes in, he looks at me, and this is the first thing he says to me. He says, and I'm dating, I'm dating this girl named Lori Braun, who's now Lori Vesati, who's now my wife 30 years later. And everyone came up. And listen, I don't want to paint a picture of him. I don't want to. I know all these origin stories were all rags and riches. I'm not painting a picture of like, I mean, I, I don't know how close I was to dying or not. Dying. I was in bad shape, right? Yeah. So he comes in and he goes, hey, um, you all right? I'm like, no, I'm not all right. <laughs> my femur is coming through my, uh, my leg and um, I'm all head to toe rashed up. And he leans over and he goes, hey, um, I don't want to be the first one to tell you this, but on the car ride up, I think your brother was making some moves on your girlfriend. <laughs> And I was like, you know, and I fell for it, hook, line, sinker. I mean, I, I think he just wanted to get me angry to keep me in the game. And he has consistently done that my entire life. Maybe that's where some of my anger comes from, my, my passion, my intensity, because I will always get angry, but then I'll always go back to his rationale or his reasons. Like, he, he tends to be right on most things. I can be angry about all I want. And that wasn't true about my brother and my girlfriend at the time. That was just him. I didn't know it wasn't true at the time. That was just him. That's his way. Like, it's just his way. It wasn't done to hurt my feelings. It wasn't done because he was being a jerk. My dad's not a jerk. My dad has, like, more friends than – my dad's more social than he could possibly have. always has been. I mean, yeah. he's a very entertaining guy. But he is a very – um. He's like blunt force trauma, man. It's like uh, <laughs> there's no there's, there's a no BS gauge there. Yeah. As opposed to me, like I crave attention. Like I shot my jump shot 
however good it was in my mind or among anybody else, if it wasn't good, I probably was shooting it for somebody else. Like if my dad was shooting a jump shot, he's not shooting it for anybody but him. And he doesn't care who sees. Yeah. You know what I mean? So yeah. he's, he's, and that's what I admire about as I got older, I really admire about his ability just to, I don't know, man, he's just, he's very calculated in his life and he doesn't, he doesn't really, I'm not saying he doesn't take into account other people's feelings, but he's not going to, no one's going to get in his head about what he wants. It's probably pretty easy to get inside my head until, until recently. And, and when you get inside my head, it might be the worst thing you'd ever want to do. <laughs> I'm going to focus on you or it might be the best thing you want to do because you're going to get me off my game. So right, right. it's like you know, flip a coin. Yeah. So there's a couple times that we mentioned your, your car accident and the, the two broken legs and, and a wheelchair. And the last episode I, I recorded was with an injury psychologist, PhD in the UK, and he works with a lot of injured athletes and getting them through the mental hurdles of injury and rehabilitation and getting back to a sport, uh, getting back to your identity as an athlete, uh, which could be really hard. I've had maybe 3 million injuries. Uh, I'm you know, not as severe as yours as a car accident. So, uh, and I know when we were texting, you said that was such a looking back on it. It was such like a pivotal moment in your life, but you haven't thought about it in, in so long. So I'd love to hear just what happened and, and how that all kind of unfolded. If I were to really unpack it from a 52 year old perspective and going back into an 18 year old perspective, my whole identity was basketball. So in that moment, that identity was shattered it was the mid eighties. So it wasn't like today, like there wasn't this idea of, I mean, training was training was 15 years off in terms of maybe 20 in terms of maybe 30 in terms of how they're doing it today. Yeah. Um, they were just basically, Hey, you know, go to the doctor, go to some rehab and then you're on your own. Right. I'm certain if that 18, if that happened to an 18 year old today and he was a high performer, he or she was a high performing athlete, they would have the support system in place from, performance training and rehab and or just consider what people are doing on Instagram and the advice like these prehab guys give and you there's a playbook on YouTube for someone who's been through this before though there's no playbook in the 80s so left to my own devices I have to give myself a pretty poor grade in terms of mental fortitude and character and almost maybe like using it as an excuse I often think that I did I self-sabotage? Was that, you know, because I wasn't, because I couldn't be the, did I perceive myself not being the athlete I could be, so therefore I didn't work as hard or I didn't put myself in certain situations. I kind of separated myself from the team. You know, so I go into that situation as an 18-year-old, two weeks. I'm part of this team, this tight team on a campus. I'm feeling really good about myself in terms of the pride of being a part of that team. And all of a sudden, physically, I'm not able to be a part of that team. So. I actually didn't engage at all. I didn't go to practice. I didn't do the stats. I didn't do, I didn't stay engaged with my teammates. I kind of became this kind of like separate entity unto myself and came, became a lot more withdrawn, which is like the exact opposite thing that you want to do. So I, I would not be the, uh, the, the, the uh, person to write the roadmap on how to come back from uh, an injury, you know? Well, I mean, I'm sure you've, that's probably you also being hard on yourself because I feel like it taught you a lot of life lessons and probably guided you to where you are today and the coach you are today. And right. Like if you were to help an athlete today that, that went through something similar, 
it seems like you did learn a lot, right? I mean, there's well, yeah. The lesson is the lesson is, is that person is going to need like I think throwing somebody to the wolves is a great idea some of the time, right? And that and I, and I have been thrown to the wolves my entire life, but it's different. That that situation is like being thrown in a hole with no ladder to get out. And I think there's at times you know situations where people need probably a ladder to get out of those situations because psychologically and or physically you know, they're not going to be able to get out by themselves. And, and there, it could have been a situation too, like, because I did come back. I don't know if it was psychological or physical. I don't know because psychologically I was always afraid I was too slow or I was going to hurt my leg again or I felt this pain here or felt this pain here. I was running funny, blah, blah, blah. What's interesting about that story is, is that the, the head coach calls me in. Red shirt, I came back the next year. Head coach calls me in and says, Rob, you're done. I can't compete anymore. And it was the most humiliating thing for me because my whole thing was I needed a college scholarship. And he goes, and even, even the walk-ons, they were going to travel, right? And I wasn't even as good as a walk-on at this point, which really was damaging to my ego. Um, and he said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to keep you on full scholarship. We're going to make you the team manager. And I was like, there's no, I was too stupid. That was probably a great deal. I should have taken that deal. I said, no, thanks. I get up and a couple of months later, I'm in a car driving to Alaska. People ask me, hey, why did you go to Alaska? I'll say, um, ah, I went to Alaska to die. No reason, adventure. I probably went to Alaska to run away from my, from my basketball career and the car injury. That's why I was going to Alaska. And then when I go to Alaska, I end up playing recreational basketball at lunch with all the, all the guys from the, the, the military bases there, uh, the Native Americans in Alaska, and student population of Alaska love basketball at the wintertime. What are they going to do? So the coach, the head coach of the school, was Division Two, walks in the gym, sees me playing, and was like, "Hey, you want to play for a scholarship?" And I was like, "Sure," because it's Alaska. I mean, who are they recruiting? So that's a whole other dynamic. I, then I got a scholarship there. I started. I played all around the country, playing for the University of Alaska. That's awesome. Bizarre, bizarre story. Yeah, 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 for sure. And that it was such a standout story. I remember hearing it 15, 16 years ago right. of you just getting in a car and, and heading out to Alaska. Like, what the hell was this guy thinking? But well, uh, now you know the reason. Yeah, uh, yeah. I was, I was actually running away from my, my problems. When I really think about it, I was running away yeah. from my issue. Right. I think a lot of us do that. You know, you crave that fresh start. You want that new environment. You want that new right? I mean, it's just, yeah. let's, let's leave that behind. And yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's an interesting story. And I think you've pulled so many lessons from there. And I think it's made you who you are with, again, like I said, at the beginning, just how motivational you are, and your ability to coach athletes. And I, I think you probably pull, I mean, from all of those life experiences, right? How your, your parents were, uh, they were two very different approaches, but together, yeah. it is just such like a, almost like a perfect duo, it seemed like to make you the athlete and the coach you became. You were a McDonald's All-American, right? Well, I put that on my resume, but the truth of the matter is I was a nominated McDonald's All-American. Nominated, nominated. Right, yeah, right. So, okay. so it's, it's a thousand. Impre rounds. Impressive nonetheless. Yeah. yeah. Uh, hey, listen, I'll, I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, maybe we touched on this uh, a little bit already. It sounded like, because I, I wanted to ask how you made that happen. What, what, what was that journey like, That the trajectory that you were on? It seems like you were very centrally focused on the jump shot. And like you said, you were avoiding some other areas of the game that maybe you shouldn't have, but it still kind of worked in your favor, right? Cause you, you do hear sometimes being a jack of all trades could take away from right. 
your expertise well, or like, but how that happened is like my dad too because I, you know this is going to sound terrible to say because when coaches hear it today they kind of cringe i cringe my dad literally shot me around to different high schools he went to hollandale at the time which is the powerhouse and he went to dillard and i think what happened is like many of us he met a guy named george smith and made a guy named john bush who was the basketball coach at the time and and my dad's from ohio and my dad can kind of relate to coach smith being from indiana and my my head basketball coach was a midwest guy from Indiana, so they're all kind of from the same place or the same region of the country. They all kind of, my dad understood them. And um, I think when he met those guys and, and I had a chance to meet them and I even had, I don't know, they made me practice and I, uh, as an eighth grader in the summer, I went to BCC and I actually, I kind of like a tryout, you know, and I practiced with some of these other guys and, and so the head coach could watch me play. and. You know, he said that I should come to St. Thomas. And so I was living on the, we had tried, listen, I lived everywhere in, you know, Ohio, back and forth from Ohio and Florida and the East coast of Florida, West coast of Florida. So I was on the West coast of Florida after that summer for like a, I went to Cape Coral high for like a month or whatever. And then I said, Hey, we're going to St. Thomas. I had never even heard of St. Thomas before, except in that summer when I, you know, my dad brought me around and I met those guys and, um, Wow. I mean, just, I mean, just think about, you know, we talked about my accident and destiny and all these other things. Like how would I know, how would my dad know that in 1982 that coach Smith had roughly been there, I don't know, eight or nine years, seven maybe, and that he was going to go on and build an athletic program that would be known around the world. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like I travel a lot now and I, I wear my Aquinas stuff and people will stop me and be like, Hey, do you know, St. Thomas football? And I'll be like, yeah, you know, and I didn't even play football when I was at St. Thomas, but um, that's the story of, of that. And then the story of me becoming better you talk about my mom and dad was there, that there kid that was older than me, his name was Danny Duncan. And he practiced like crazy. And I practiced with him and, and just honed my skills. And then, I don't know where he's at now. He's not on social media. I hope he's not listening to this. But I really he, listen. We play one on one. He beat me every time. I mean, like seventy five percent of games he beat me. But there's one thing that Danny didn't have that I had. So Danny had a tremendous work ethic. Danny is one of the few people I will publicly say had a better jump shot than me. Okay, <laughs> but what he didn't have is my dad. So what my dad used to do. Listen to the, all the other trauma of my father. My father used to bring me, I don't know if you know about what I would call, uh, we're being politically correct here, but I'll just go ahead and say, because I'm in the category, I'll be uh, an AARP member in a couple of years. Yeah. My dad used to take me around to these old man basketball games. And I don't know about them. I mean, if you ever try to, you ever try to play a game, a bunch of a select group of guys and been playing together for 10, 15 years who were over the age of 40. Have you ever done that? No, I don't think so. And, I, and I'll tell you the reason why you probably haven't done it. <laughs> because those guys don't like outsiders. Right. They don't. They've been playing together for 10 years. They're 35 to 45. They're afraid of injuries. They're friends. They don't like outsiders. Well, this is my dad's mentality. Whatever city we moved to, right, he would find that group of guys because he loved basketball and he was an older guy. And he used to break into that unbreakable network. But not on top of that, 
he used to drag around his kid with him. <laughs> and he would force his kid into the network. So imagine me being whatever, eight to whatever, up until I was in high school, being dragged into these very tight basketball networks of people who didn't want me there. And my dad never even cared that they didn't want me there because he forced me upon them. And they would look at me like, all right, who's going to guard the kid? And so what I learned from them that Danny never learned is that when you play basketball with older guys because they're so damaged, you learn these tricks of the trade. You learn when to bump somebody. You learn about this pass because they have to compensate so much. So I just sat there and played with them and soaked up all their compensations. Then the other thing my dad used to do is take me straight to whatever downtown we lived in, straight to the park, and drop me off at the park. I wasn't from the neighborhood. I didn't know anything about the park, and I was there by myself alone. And I would play basketball in urban areas too. And so, you know, I learned that game. If I was going to be on a team, like a little league team or a side team, it would always be in an urban area. I had the, the fast-paced game that I got exposed to. I got the, the older guy uh, game that I was exposed to, the tricks of the trade. And then I got Danny Duncan. But he didn't have those things. So as we got up and up and up and better, he didn't have the tricks and he didn't have the other stuff because he just played by himself. And I didn't. Right. That, that's how I kind of like – That's that. he didn't have my dad. He yeah. didn't have my dad. He'd been a lot better. I would imagine you pull a lot of those experiences into your, it goes into your coaching. When I first got into coaching, you got, you kind of alluded to it. And we talked earlier is that, um, man, I pull a lot from my dad. Like I was pretty, you know, I was pretty relentless in yeah. terms of, um, you know, even with 15 year olds, like, I mean, <laughs> a couple times, like I just was, I was, I was un, unbending. Uh, there was and we always had success too. And, and the, the kids always ended up, I think that, I, you know, I think they like me afterwards. I'm, I'm friends with them as adults now. Uh, but I was remember, I remember one time, uh, this, this kid named Anthony Prasquala. So he played at St. Thomas. He made my first year. I had already been coaching in Pennsylvania. I coached in, in North Carolina in high school level. But he had made the JV team as a freshman. So he knew what, the, what, the, what we were going to go through. And that first group that first year with, uh, with uh, Leo Del Cabo and Kenny, God, Kenny Florio and Demetrius Smith and Dave Foster and a bunch of those guys. And they, they responded to my dad's technique, if you want to call it that. And, and Anthony was a freshman on the team. So that next year, the kids, they probably weren't as tough as those, those, those kids, but they were, they were just as good in terms of their record or in terms of their performance or in terms of whatever. But I remember we were winning our games, but I came into the practice gym after um, a game and no one was warming up and no one was, uh, no one was doing anything. And this kid comes up to me, it was either Anthony or it was Anthony and maybe Jamie Solomon. And they were like, you know, we're not going to practice today until you calm down. Right. And this is like 10th graders having a conversation with a 35 year old. Right? I was like, oh, so what we have here is a mutiny on our hands. I, I must've ran them. We ran, I'll call them line touches because you know, they're usually, they're, they're yeah. called beforehand. We'll call them line touches now. But, there's no negotiation. I ran them right into the ground and then they responded. You know what I mean? And then I'm not sure I, I was, I was using a tool that I, I only thought I had one tool in the toolbox. I probably had more tools. I'm not sure that I should have, you know, went, um, you know, captain Bly on them mutiny on the bounty. 
Yeah. You know, it was all it was all I knew at the time. As you coach, you get more tools in the toolbox and learn more. So, you know, I'm not sure I would use that method today, but I can definitely see my dad's my dad's impact in those early coaching days. Yeah. But I would imagine doing that, there was still some benefit to it, right? Especially if you have a team that's rebelling teenagers that are, you know, like to kind of. There's a, there's a benefit to it, but I'll tell you, it cost me that strategy cost me my, the third year I was coaching. I'll tell you how it cost me because I, I, I coached with a lot of passion. I, I kind of like unyielding when I was younger and the last team I coached at St. Thomas in terms of basketball, in terms of JV basketball, was um, was a great team. I'll tell you how great they were. This is how great they were. That the guy from Arkansas, I think his name was Richardson. I forget his name. Very famous college basketball coach from University of Arkansas, Nolan Richardson. Right. So we're playing Dillard, and he comes before the varsity game, and he's in the stands. Now understand, Dillard. Everyone knows Dillard across the country as far as being good at basketball. Right. So here we are. This puny bunch of St. Thomas kids who are not good at or not perceived as being as good as Dillard. And we come out and we're, we're an up-tempo team. And we press and we, we were running and gunning like Loyola Marymount. And we come out and we put it on them. And you have to understand that this, the fans were being packed because they were getting ready for the varsity game. And one of my favorite moments at St. Thomas coaching is I work myself up into like this Genghis Khan swirl, like a passion and emotion where things are just rolling, right? Both psychologically, emotions are contagious, and you just feel it. I even think the assistant coach was giving me some Advil or something because I had this pounding headache, and I was sweating, and I was just – I mean, I was completely, for lack of a better term, intoxicated by the moment. And in that moment, through the haze of passion, I pull it aside and I see Noel Richardson in the stands, but I think that's his name, Coach Richardson. And his look is one of complete bewilderment about how our team is just putting it on these guys. Making my point here is this. Is that all worked until like five or six? And then it didn't work. And then when it doesn't work, where are you going to go next? No. If you don't have any, any else, anything else in your toolkit, where are you going to go next? When all you're using is passion and pure force of will, when that runs out or that stops working, where do you go next? And making my point is it, it had worked for me pretty much until that point, and that was a good learning coaching lesson because it, then it stopped working. And when it stopped working, it stopped working in a really horrible way. It was a slow descent that turned into a steep descent both in terms of team psychology and then team performance. Yeah. Fast forwarding to years after that, where your coaching style starts to change. Are you a little more focused on things like the team psychology? Are you utilizing anything like sports psychology techniques and practices? Well, the, the best thing that happened to me in coaching was, well, first of all, I really enjoyed my time at St. Thomas basketball. I mean, that was, and that was a time too. I mean, wow. The varsity team was going to Final Fours. I think they've been three or four times because uh, of Coach Strand, a guy that would give anybody the shirt off his back. I mean, a guy that is just like the most giving person you'd ever want to come across, just a great guy. Um, but we were really being successful at that time. So that was, I mean, I am so lucky. So I got to be a part of that program and contribute my players 
to varsity state championships um, and be a part of it. And then, like, in the, when I started coaching football, you know what was great about coaching football and being the strength coach is you don't have to decide on who's going to start. There's no wins or losses, right? So you could really build a team. And so I think why I really loved being a strength and conditioning coach because it was my team for four to six months. And it was just us. And I could have an impact on a kid who would never see the football field, who's fifth string, but wanted to be a part of something bigger than himself. Some of my best moments are kids who even good athletes would come to me and say, you know, Coach B, I'm so glad that I got to be a part of this because I'm going through this at home or I was depressed and this makes me feel better. And I could just tell that that was great for me. How my style changed was, first of all, I mean, how lucky can I be to come along at a time where there was no strength and conditioning program? I didn't know what I was doing. Coach Smith didn't want to hire you want to hire another guy. The guy was way too much money. I was personal training and making um, really good side money for a teacher. And he said, Hey, we want to beat Lakeland. I want you to take over this program. What year was that? That was 2005. So what happens is this, is that I had, I, I got my, my certification to be a personal trainer and I really um, went deep and I got a master's degree at the same time I was training the teams. I went back on my master's degree in exercise science. And those first two years, I think I was a very competent strength and conditioning coach with a very, if, uh, Bill Parcells uses this analogy, like he talks about ingredients and being a chef in a kitchen. I mean, it's hard to mess up St. Thomas football when you're working with the best ingredients. I mean, yeah. let me just, let me just put that out there. Number one, like, I'm not saying anybody can walk off the street and do it, but I'm just saying it's, it's a, any other school I taught at, Perkyomi Valley, Ben L. Smith, the other high schools I had been at, I mean, not even close. Yeah. So I'm working with the best athletes on the planet, right? But where, where things came together for me, getting better as a strength coach and finding that center of gravity was I was in the um, – there's this guy named Jeremy Boone. I always talk about him because Coach Shep, <laughs> Coach Shep, who's a legend of STA, yeah. He's like the, the Wyatt Earp of STA. Yeah. Um, he me to go to this, uh, this seminar with him, and I think it was in New Jersey. And it turns out it was hilarious because it was supposed to be a strength conditioning seminar, but it turned out to be – he must have read everything wrong. And I just agreed to go with him because he needed something to go with. It was a sales conference about how to sell yourself as a personal trainer or product, product deal, right? It wasn't even about – you know, the mechanics of personal training or the protocols or whatever. So I was like, what am I doing here? And so there's this guy named Jeremy Boone and he talked about games, man, it really touched the chord with me. Like, so I went back in the summer of 2007 and instead of doing things in a very orthodox sort of way, um, I, I took my dad and what he brought to the table as far as, his, as far as his bluntness. And I took the fun of instituting between 10 and 30 minutes of games in the workouts, either before, after, or during, depending on my mood or depending on what I was picking up from the team. And that thing just, I mean, the introduction to me of games, and I know it's counterintuitive, our workouts completely became something that I never even, I, I, I've never seen such passion in my entire life. 
to the point where sometimes we played 40 minutes of games in a 90-minute session. And I was told not to play games several times by Coach Smith, specifically <laughs> told not to play dodgeball. And we would have full-on dodgeball games with volleyballs. Some of our kids were baseball players, so those things would travel <laughs> 70, 90 miles an hour. But you talk about you talk about euphoria. You talk about being in the zone. So I'll just use dodgeball as an example or tag, various forms of tag. When you have 90 people in a weight room and you are being an orthodox strength and conditioning coach, that will work, but it's more like a machine. It's more like mechanical. It's more like do X and there's Y. Or one plus one equals two. My opinion at St. Thomas, knowing all your players and having it be one giant family and, and they've already bought into the orthodox of working out and it's St. Thomas football so they know the stakes and they're all bought in already and they trust you if they do you introduce 20 minutes of games for a reward when you get done playing tag or dodgeball and you bring those guys back into the weight room for 35 minutes of, of you know whatever stations they're going to be at the electricity is contagious and it, it overflows into the workout and, and it makes people want to come to the workout so your attendance goes up and it bonds people so all those things happened would i do it today no way i would not and i'll tell you why because when i look back at what we did and there's been plenty of players who i love and that are famous now and and, and some of them commented on it and who loved it but Nick Bosa, for instance, I put out a video uh, recently. It's 2007. It's in the wrestling room in St. Thomas. Which, and that time, it was like Thunderdome. No AC. Wrestling mats are gross. Slippery. <laughs> gaps in the mats. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Super dangerous. You have literally guys hurdling each other, landing on mats. And these aren't just regular guys. These are guys that are going to go on to sign $40 million contracts. <laughs> Right. So he, we were joking around like, man, how did you pull that off? And no one ruined their career. You right. know, because I, I can specifically remember, I don't know if it was Giovanni Bernard or I don't know who it was. But it, was it was during 2009 and Major Wright came back. And we, had, we had made up a game. We combined Buffalo Bill, which is like uh, some minnows with dodgeball. So our Tigers had volleyballs instead of tagging with their hands. And one time, I, I think it was, I don't know who it was, Major Wright was playing with us. He was in the pros. I think it was Giovanni Bernard, because I remember he hit somebody below the belt, the volleyball, and that kid laid on the field for like 40 minutes. I don't even agree to And I was just like, man. And, and so as my career went on from 2005 to roughly 2015, 16, 17-ish, where kind of the Dean's job kind of took over, I became a lot smarter in my games where early on it was Thunderdome. It was complete chaos and madness. And I have the, what's great is I have the videos to prove it and it worked. I don't, I'm not sure I would do it again. And I'm not sure if I was the AD, I'd let me do what I did. Right. Well, so the fact that it worked, did you incorporate anything afterwards to obviously minimize potential injuries, but to still get yes. the benefits of? Yes, absolutely. So as time went on, so you have, this is, this is, I find this hilarious because there's, first of all, I'm not a strength coach. I'm a coach, but 
but you have people who are just strength coaches who might have never coached a sport before in their life. So I had coached before. Yeah, I coached basketball. I had coached another sport of basketball. I actually coached players. So I think that was the benefit to me. And I also think another benefit was I wasn't born as a strength coach. So I kind of came out of it. I kind of like it was like a buffet table. If I'll take a little bit of this, I'll take that. I'll read this. I'll do that. And I'm still doing that for myself and my son right now. But my point is, is that, man, getting a room of strength coaches, I mean, I'm not like a big fan of strength coaches because they're either so psychotic (laughs) or so dogmatic, right? That like, like, I mean, Coach Smith, ultimate innovator, like I would bring anything to him. I'd be like, hey, coach, or he'd bring something to me. He'd be like, hey, we're doing Pilates. And I'd be like, cool. So, So we're doing Pilates. So we're everyone's doing Pilates. So we did Pilates one year and, and, and I got to speak at these different colleges because St. Thomas, it wasn't because of me. It was because of St. Thomas football. I wasn't strength and conditioning coach of the year because of me. No one watched me in the weight room for six months with a bunch of guys. We won a national championship and they were looking around and they're like, all right, who's the guy from St. Thomas? Well, to, to interrupt you there, I don't know. I feel like you might be selling yourself a little short because when I look at St. Thomas's track record before you got started in the strength and conditioning role, I think they had three state championships. No. So what happened is the reason why I got put in that role is because this is a great story. Lakeland beat us. I didn't even go to football games when I was at St. Thomas as a teacher. I was on the basketball side of things. As a matter of fact, I have a lot of hard feelings toward football. Yeah. Not only as a student, because I always felt like we were the other sports were the also rans. Right. But also as a teacher, it was like, and as a basketball coach, I was like, man, I feel like I'm getting leftovers here all the time. Yeah. So football. So, but apparently we won a state championship in 2009. And then this team Lakeland beat us in 2005. And the beating was so horrific. And the, I, I, guess was at, the, I was at that game. Okay. I guess the pregame when we came out, you know, like the old style football guys that had to cut off shirts. Yeah. So you can see their abs. Yeah. I guess when Lakeland took the field, we took the field that was like really obvious who was more prepared from a physical standpoint. So that's how I got hired. Then I became, uh, you know, because of Coach Smith and because of the type of athletes that we have, so knee deep into this world of high school football. And just, I rode that. I mean, like I said before, I mean, the luckiest guy on earth. I mean, how do I get to be a part of, and I don't, I don't, I don't care who's listening to this. I don't care what high school program, whether it be the one out in California, whose name I've already forgotten or, or wherever Lakeland, whatever the most storied program in the history of high school football in the universe. <laughs> right. So that's my opinion. And yeah. I'll stick to that. I'll stand by that with you. And I, and I think we have a good track record, but I just, happened to come around at a really good time and had a really I have a father-son relationship with Coach Smith and talking about my dad obviously my dad's the most important person in my life but as far as like someone who really kind of like um gives me a lot of lessons about coaching is Coach Smith and uh wow what an impact he had on me in those years as a person and as a coach that allowed me to be a better coach to yeah so I mean I I am I do have an ego about it. I don't like the, you know. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Say like, you know, I'm sure that every, as I get older, every single person in that program, I mean, let's face it, football is like carrier operations. It's like landing, 
There's so many moving parts. It's not a rowboat. You know, it's it's a carrier. There's a, there's the guy landing the plane. There's the guy driving the ship. Yeah. There's the guy maintenance the planes. I mean, it's like the operations are unbelievable. And I know for a fact that every person involved, every adult in that program probably thinks it's them is the reason why that St. Thomas football is what it is. So I'm very cognizant of that. You know, I, I love my role. And, and, and don't get me wrong, Derek, there was a time when my ego was so giant when it came to that that I actually thought that I was the one who was making that happen. And you, well, know, you know who's smart? You know who's smart? I'll let you, I'll let you it's your show. I'll let you talk. It's like, you know who's brilliant, though? You know, you know the brilliance of all this is? The brilliance of Coach Smith is he actually let me and encouraged that thought. And, and, and even to his own, like, um, that was his way of what He knew what motivated me. He knew I liked attention. Don't think for one second that Coach Smith, not unlike my dad, had a reason to mention my name. If you're in USA Today or uh, on a football show or, hey, Ron, you want to get interviewed by Max Preps or you want to speak at this conference. And I'm not saying there was a total – He's playing poker behind the scenes, pulling the strings, but kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He knows, you know? So right. that's well, awesome. Yeah, wh- whether you're the main reason or not, yeah. you're a reason for sure. Because oh, yeah. I mean, I'm looking at AquinasFootball.com right now, right at the top, Florida State champions, 92, 97, 99. So you didn't play a role in those, right? You're not, you weren't there oh. yet. And, oh. But then you see... 2007, 2008, 2010, 2012, 2014, 2015, 2016, also national champions 2008 and 2010. And to think that you didn't play a role in that, as you even explained in 2005 in Lakeland, you're seeing the, the physical differences from St. Thomas and, and the opposing team to now. Na- I mean, you certainly played a big role. Yeah, I would say don't, don't sell yourself short. I'll tell you what, I'll tell you where I played a role looking back at it from my perspective now, I want, I want to say something about this guy named Marcel Archer because he's a true football player, you know, great football player. I think he played at Western Michigan. I asked him to come in the weight room before I started training the 2005 team. And he, we went through just me and him six o'clock in the morning, just me and him. And I was able to like practice on him alone before team workout started. And then, so he's a major reason of helping me understand the football world. And cause I, I was, I never played football. I never coached football. I didn't, I didn't know anything. I mean, I obviously love football. I'm American for, for crying out loud. I watched football <laughs> or whatever, but then there's, there's three other guys, you know, a, uh, in 2007, Dan Doherty, Chris Eterno, Andrew Datko, where I got introduced to this idea of games. Marcella kind of walked me through the numbers early on. Then I was kind of like a, a very orthodox coach for those two years. And then those guys went out and recruited the other guys to come in and do what's called the lab rats. I have it on video somewhere where we went through and we lab ratted everything out we were going to do for that upcoming conditioning period, including the games. And so what I had there was not only to have the orthodox strength coach, but then I had prepped for what, what I was going to do as far as the games. And then I had buy-in amongst another guy like John Hearns too. I'd buy in amongst these guys. And once I had that, that thing just took off. I will take my fair share of the credit for 2007 for sure. I will not take any credit, (laughs) zero, 
zero for 2008. Zero. Those guys, that was destiny. Matter of fact, I love those guys. Those guys are the most difficult people on earth to work with. Ryan Becker, who else was on that team? Gabe Holmes, that team that was, who's the Chris Carter's kid, Duran was on that team. Those guys, literally, because they were juniors in 2007, I think that I was so close to the seniors in that year that the juniors really resented it. So they went into a full-on revolt against me in 2008. And guess what? The captain got thrown overboard. They took it upon themselves. I literally would fight with those guys every day in the weight room. Nothing I did worked. They didn't want to hear it. Matter of fact, they didn't even work that hard. I'll tell you what happened. They had a great team. They had great chemistry with each other. And Becker, as much as – Ryan Becker was my homeroom. And as much as I love Ryan Becker, and I still love him as a person to this day. I love the man. I love the kid. But Ryan Becker is the cockiest person you'd ever want to come across. And not only is he cocky, but he backs it up. So Ryan Becker will beat you in horse. He'll beat you in ping pong. And, and he looked at me like, I, I swear to you, during the workouts, he would look at me in that summer and be like, what, why, are you, why are you doing this? <laughs> why are you even yelling? Right. Like, you know, we don't even need you here. You know, <laughs> he, went, he went and backed it up because – if I could encapsulate Ryan Becker in a moment, we're playing Elder for our first away game and the first kind of like idea that, in my mind, not knowing anything, that high school teams would travel out of state to play their high school teams. And we're playing in Cincinnati Bengals Stadium, and we're playing this team called Elder, and we're down. I think we're down by a touchdown, or we're down by 10 points, and literally Ryan Becker is on one knee. And, you know, every coach wants their players to be dialed in and focused. I'm not coaching at the time, but I was the string coach. And I'm looking at him, and I'm so appalled by his behavior because he is laughing, joking around, like he doesn't have a care in the world. And guess what? He didn't. And he went out there, and he just dominated that game. <laughs> yeah. And so as, and as a matter of fact, if you go back to 2007, we had this kid. His name was Mike. He was a senior. Him and Ryan were competing for the quarterback position. And again, Ryan was a junior. And I'm sure Ryan's attitude was like, during that 2007 year, he looked at this unbreakable bond between me and the seniors and probably really resented it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because you just, you just weren't going to get in. There's no way. Right. And um, probably really resented the fact too that I probably didn't show him the, the respect that he thought he deserved, which it turns out he did. They let that kid, Mike, I forget his last name, great kid too. He's a, he's a great kid. They let him have the first series that year against Carlisle Gators. It was like 110 degrees out of the stadium. And I, I don't know, it was like four and out, and they decide they're going to put Ryan Becker in. Well, he throws a touchdown pass, like second his second play in that series to, um, forget the kid's name, he played at Auburn. I forget his name, um, whatever. Uh, great, also a great kid, and that was it. And that was Ryan Becker just making plays. Him and Duran just making plays. He just made plays. So 2008, 2009, greatest talent ever assembled. A lot of different things went wrong. I will take my fair share of contribution in 2010. 2010 was a, a year that came together like 2007. And I will for sure take a lot of credit <laughs> for 2012. And I'm going to tell you why. Because that year, 
not only every, all the stars lined up that year because I had I had the, the Marcel Archer teach me how to be a football coach in the early year, an orthodox coach. Then I had Danny Doherty, Turno, and Daco and Hearns teach me how to be like evolve again. 2008, they had Team of Destiny. 2009, a series of unfortunate events. 2010, man, we came together. But 2012, I am talking about the most unorthodox group of individuals, of straight-up pirates, a pirate attitude, a pirate atmosphere, everything. And the thing is, even though they were like these, I don't know, rebels, they all came together. So the Scott Northcuts, the Boozers, you know, Joey Bosa was on that team. Just think about a guy like Joey Bosa or Nikki Bosa being on that team. Uh, John O'Corn was the quarterback. He was at Michigan. Even the backups. Uh, they, and they were such a tight group. I mean, what a tight, tight, tight class. And I was close to all those kids as seniors, and they all bought in to the games and to the workouts. And that was a magical, magical team. Yeah. yeah. And do you think that team cohesion and the team psychology, a lot of it is really built in the gym? Is it happening? Uh, in I think so. I mean, yeah. at least that's when, it, that's when I'm really having a good time is when we're all on the same page and those times we're all communicating. We all know about oppositional thinking. And what I mean by that is, you know, up is down, black is white. Yes is maybe as long as we get from point A to point B, you know what I mean? So you have this, yeah. you have this culture of like, I don't know. Like, you never know what's going to happen, but then it happens. Like, say, you have like, a guy coming up to me saying, hey, the defensive backs aren't working, and then I make him run. And he's like, hey, I'm the one who's telling you, yeah, but you're running because you're, you're being a tattletale. And the whole team's cheering while you're running, you know, or then I'll never forget one moment. Like, this kid, Scott Northcutt. First of all, you have this, these two kids. Uh, and I'm not diminishing anybody else because I love the Bozos. And by the way, those two kids, they work like no other. And they didn't have to buy into the team concept. They always did 100%. As did, there's only, if you look at the pros in our program, if, you, if you're going to be a kid and you're going to say, okay, what's the roadmap to be a professional athlete? I don't know what it's like at other schools, but I would say that of all the pros that come out of our school, wow, only like, if there's 30 of them, I don't know what the number is, maybe two or one were like not team guys where you would maybe two or one, but if you talk about like a James White or a Giovanni Bernard or a Brandon Linder or a Leonard Hankerson or a, or a Phil Dorsett, any, anyone, Jake Rudock, uh, Cody Riggs, LaMarcus Joyner. And I know I'm missing a, a bunch, but any one of those guys is like a team guy. Any one of those guys would be glad that they married your daughter. Right. Like every one, there might be a, one or two, obviously, I'm not going to mention their name, <laughs> where, I was, where I was like, uh, you know, okay, that actually there's only one kid that I could say a uh, whole thing where I was like, man, that kid's a very, what's the right word to use, like kind of like a uh, really rebelled against authority to the point where you were just like, he was very difficult to manage. There was one I'd put in that category too, but not put him in that category. He just, there was a, there was a rationale behind his rebellion. He was an articulate, rebellious person. He wasn't doing it to just be rebellious. But all the West, they were kind of conforming, conformist type kids. Yeah. They weren't what you think of like, you know, like these, these outliers. 
Right. Good grades, good kids, good families, respectable, you know? Yeah. That was a question that I really wanted to, to ask you was having coached so many kids that went on to become pro athletes, how often can you tell that they are going to go pro? Like, can you, is there a lot of times where you like, you could just tell right out of the gates or not really? I think there's only been one kid. So maybe, a, maybe a football guy can. And certainly from an athletic stance, I can see, wow, who, who are the better athletes? And I can watch the games and know where they're going to college. Yeah. But I would have no, I could have no idea that like James White would essentially be the Super Bowl MVP. I could have not foreseen that at all, nor could I have foreseen Giovanni. I mean, don't get me wrong. Awesome high school athletes, recruited elite universities, elite college performances. But at that time, I wouldn't have known that. I'd known they were elite high school athletes. There's one kid, though. There's one kid that stands out in my mind where you're like, this kid's going, and he's going first round, and, and nothing's going to stop him. And that's LaMarcus Joyner. Yeah. Well, Marcus Joyner single-handedly stops games in 2009. We had to pause the games because I really thought he was going to hurt somebody or hurt, some, hurt himself or hurt somebody else because he's so – his acceleration, like if you're playing a game of tag, it's not going to be tag. It's going to be tackle football, not because Marcus is going to do anything wrong. He's just so fast. Yeah, He's going to knock somebody out doing tag or if you're doing a tug of war – he could hurt somebody. He, he's that. When they told me Lamarcus Joyner was like, I don't know what how, how tall he is. When they kind of told me he was like five nine, buck seventy, it didn't register with me because I guess when he was playing college and somebody told me that stat on him. I was like, no way. He's like six two because he always was like this nicest guy, by the way, too. Not 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 a jerk, not an egotistical maniac, but he was just such a explosive athlete but that's the guy you knew that was going to go pro of yeah. all those guys the other guys i i, I wouldn't have known yeah what did, did he have like the work ethic as well the mentality this the guy, right mentality this guy you talk about work ethic you talk <laughs> about you talk about being number one like a lot of guys i'll say this about all those guys with the exception of maybe one or two that i mentioned all those guys would be if not number one in the sprints in the top, you know, 5% if we're doing that. If we're doing something that's a conditioning phase, that's something that no one wants to do, I can't think of a pro athlete out of our program with the exception of one or two or three guys that wasn't giving 100%. They might not have been number one in what we were doing. They weren't number one because they weren't trying to be number one. There's a lot of guys who are starting on our teams that probably weren't going to give their full effort. You know what I mean? You could see that. But those pro guys, like LaMarcus Joyner, I mean, I, I heard stories about him in college, and I believed it because he, if we were running 110-yard dashes, he'd be number one all the time. And not only that, he'd run so hard, he'd have to lay down and, to recover. Like, you thought he was going to pass out. That's, the, that's why I, I singled him out as a guy where I'm like, wow, that guy's insane in terms of his work ethic. And they all were. He was at another level of insanity. Right, right. Yeah, that's what I was curious about because I mean, I always hear stories about, uh, I mean, different sport, but Connor McDavid in the NHL considered like the Gretzky of today's era, basically. But I always yeah. read stories about him when he was like 14, 15, where like after every practice, he'd 
he'd get off the the ice, take his equipment off, and he'd be sitting there just doing planks for like thirty minutes. He'd just be sta- like after doing a, a yeah. So just this like obsession, obsession, just the constant drive to become better. And so you having worked with you know similar aged kids, that's why I wanted to hear of just those. So, well, Lamarcus Joyner was like that. I don't think those other guys that are pros were at that level. I think they gave one hundred percent. I don't think they gave one hundred and ten like Lamarcus. It's interesting you say that too because my gut tells me being probably more knowledgeable of high school basketball world than football. I don't think basketball players, I hope I don't offend basketball players by saying this. I don't think that the top high school basketball players are like the top football players in terms of their, their work ethic. Yeah. And I say that as a basketball player, because I think one of the things that at least in my era, which is like a hundred years ago, one of the things about being a basketball player is, is you have to look, very capable without looking like you're trying to be capable. It's more right. important to look cool than to actually wear. I think in football, maybe it's something about the helmet, maybe it's something about the violence of the game. Sure. One of the top performing guys, they know how important the weight room is. Um, I'm not saying basketball players don't. I think there's just a different psychology. Uh, that makes in, sense. In the game. And I could yeah. be totally wrong about that. I'm not looking to offend basketball players. I'm just no, saying. I- I could see that. I think that makes sense. Uh, I've heard uh, the same thing about wrestling. Yeah. Wrestling seems, right? Like that seems to be the sport that the work. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so you can take that to another level with wrestling because then that's probably another level beyond football because that's no fun at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, that's not even like, I, I mean. That, well, just the weight, the weight cutting in general to me is like, the fact that that's a thing blows my mind. The very fact that the Navy SEALs, you know, one of the things that determines or one of, the, one, of the, one of the things that have been defined as a factor in making the Navy Special Commando Force, they always say that, like, if you wrestled and you were born on a farm or in a rural area. <laughs> yeah, those are the two one things. Of the things like, if you were a star basketball player or football player, your chances of being successful are like, no. Right. But if you wrestled, that's like, okay, you're used to constantly, your life sucks. Yeah. You know? Yeah, being very comfortable in uncomfortable situations and being able to push through just a whole lot of, yeah. Wrestling practice is the most, I don't even know why anybody would do it. I mean, I can do it. It's fun. I think it's fun for a couple of days, but to do that as a career for four to eight years, I mean, it is just, it is, you're in constant pain the entire time. And, and on top of all that, it's one-on-one. It's like, yeah, you're going in there and it's just you. Yeah, those individual sports are such a different mental game and you don't have the team to rely on there. And I'm actually reading uh, Andre Agassi's book right now and um, like maybe halfway through. But he talks about that a lot, those individual sports. And, and he hated tennis. I don't know if you ever read that book. Oh, it's incredible. But yeah, he hated tennis. And that was a bit, he's like begging his dad, like, can I just go play soccer? Like, I hate being out there by myself. It's, you just feel so vulnerable and so... Uh, but yeah, so wrestling, I mean, I, I never did it, but I remember always, and I'm a big MMA fan. So a lot of those guys came from those backgrounds or at least the ones who did. Usually you see the one, they're the ones that start to, you know, be in the top 10 rankings of their weight classes. And they're just, you see it in, in, in the ring or in the octagon. It's just such like a different type of athlete and different. You see them in the gym. They're just complete nutbags. <laughs> great work. This is you bringing this up is an opportunity for me to insult football players now. Yeah. <laughs> I would think that football players are not even in the same realm as wrestlers as far as 
you know, that work ethic, because that's just, like you said, it's, it's, it's no fun. Every second of every minute of every hour is just no fun. Yeah. Right. Right. I wanted to ask you if there were, you know, having coached so many of these kids, if you had one or two interesting standout stories. It's the kids. I'm not saying it's the kids who weren't the pros, but it's some of the kids will never hear their names because they were like the, they weren't, I'm not saying the guys that weren't the high performing football players or went on to be college stars or NFL stars weren't the glue that held teams together. But there's a lot of kids, man, like, like Nick Linder. So the Linder family in general is a really special family to me because they're just like, they're a class act. They're hardworking. And you ever know, they're just one of these families that produce quality people, like all their kids. It's like, how did, how did that happen? How did you not have one kid that turned out to be like, you know, how did they, how did they all turn out to be great? Their sister, Brittany, went on an adventure with me uh, on one of the desert hikes. But I'll never forget this story. This is getting back to that 2012 team, how special they were. Like a Nick Linder or Ryan Crozier. Talk about, I want to talk about Ryan Crozier too. Um, or Kyle Schaffenacker, or Patrick Hubbard. Some of these names you might not hear, but Nick Linder specifically. So my mom dies in 2012 it, during the football season. And, um, you know, obviously I, my dad's still with us. My mom's no longer with us. And um, I'm really going through a rough time. In that, and especially that's 24 to 48 hours. And um, Nick, who's a junior at the time, was again a great leader on a uh, basically a senior led team, but he's the, just an awesome kid, an animal. And he sends me this voicemail um, talking about you know just our relationship and the player coach relationship. And man, uh, I got to credit him with one of the people as a, being a 16 year old who brings me back from a very uh, you know a moment of adversity, a personal moment of adversity, and lets me know that how much he cares about me and what this means. And, and you know, what's really sad, I'm really sad about it too, because the message, I wish everyone could hear that message, you know, because somehow I, got a, I lost the phone it was on, but the message that it's on, I'm getting chills right now because the message that, the message that he said, I don't remember the details of it, but just how he said it and what he said, I was like, all right, time to turn the corner, earth's still turning, let's go, Yeah, you know? So that was a very, that, that's, a, that's a moment for me. I got to talk about the Northcutt family, Scott Northcutt. Like, so yeah, on that same team, and this is the team that Joey Bosa's on, and I don't need to say anything about the Bosa's because they're the Bosa's. I mean, like, what, what, what am I going to say? Like, they're the perfect, but they, they're, 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 they're physically gifted, they're great football players, and no one works harder than that. So what, what else? And they're, no, and they're nice people. And their, and their dad, by the way, I mean, so I was the dean of students, so trust me, if you think that those kids were getting a pass on anything, I can tell you they weren't. It wasn't like, hey, I'm Nikki or Joey Bosa and I can do whatever I want because I was on the phone with their dad several times where he told me, hey, green light, anything that you need. You know, so we, you could talk about the Bosa's who are fabulous kids. You could talk about the Marcus, you know, Giovanni Bernard, who's another, but Everyone knows those kids, you know, but no one, not no one, the people in that era know that, but it's like Scott Northcutt, like you talk about leader of a team and like a guy that just dotted every I, crossed every team, did everything. You talk about, like he had LaMarcus Joyner work ethic, and, but 
he was a leader for the team. And then you had like who I consider his, his best friend, this kid named Boozer, Jonathan Boozer, who is a complete, Jonathan Boozer is the type of kid that can walk into a room and break every rule. And if you or I broke those rules, not so great things would happen to us. But because of him and his charisma, he would just get a pass on whatever he did. <laughs> yeah. Whatever he did. There's nothing the kid can do um, that he wouldn't get a pass on. And I'm not talking about breaking major societal laws. I'm just talking about breaking social norms that most people wouldn't break and have it be hilarious and having putting that kind of ingredient into a team. So you have this like super focused Scott Northcutt, and then you have this Boozer, who's this kind of like crazy, we had the last name too, is this crazy tight end figure. Do you know what I mean? Like, and, and who would motivate people on that other, in, in his way. It wouldn't be the Scott Northcutt way, but it would be his way. And they're both, they both best friends. Right. Which I never understood. Yeah. I never <laughs> understood that. I never, there was literally like, you know, just two polar opposite. That, that kind of kid. Um, Ryan Crozier, just hilarious. Nick Linder, just an unbelievable worker, worker, inspirational, personally inspiring me. I talked about Marcel Archer and just a kid who just wanted to be a football player and was willing to help a coach become a better coach before he was a coach. Danny Doherty, Chris Eterno, John Hearns, Datko, all those guys in 2007, special, special group of kids. Like we went in 2007 when I was kind of willing to do anything that I would never do today, we took the whole team to a ropes course. And then two of the linemen got stuck on this tower, Sean Turner and Tyler Grellick. <laughs> They're overweight and they got stuck. <laughs> and the other players were holding them. And I had it on video. We were all making fun of them. <laughs> yeah. The whole team was, was making fun of these kids because they, they were too big to move up and down this tower <laughs> while they got <laughs> in. And people are saying they were going to fall. And I mean, it was hilarious. Yeah. I wouldn't do that. Today, but, and so those, I mean, just yeah. special times. That's awesome. Uh, see, I want to steer the conversation to last week when we were texting back and forth. You had mentioned having gone through some transformational experiences through your life. And one of them being very recently during the pandemic. Can you touch on that and what those transformational experiences have been? And I always hesitate to talk about like family when it comes to St. Thomas. And I have a lot of like, I guess you would call it regret because St. Thomas is the dark hole of the universe in terms of it's such a, it's so beautiful. Like, I mean, it's like, you can't, you can't step away from it. You can spend your whole time. I mean, when I was coaching JV basketball, I would spend every waking minute on JV basketball and get my lesson plan ready and then go to JV basketball. I can, I never understood why, we had so many guys from the outside who were successful financially, successful in their field of endeavor, successful in the business, and they would come and they want to coach at St. Thomas. And I, and I always like, why? You know what I mean? I could never understand. But as I get older, I know why. Because it gives them such purpose. Yeah. But, but when you're so close to the sun all the time, the sun being St. Thomas, you can get fried. And... I probably got fried and I probably could have been a better father and a better husband. And I just got fried. I mean, all the stories I just told you, just think about that for, for those 10 years, for, for 10 months or 10 and a half months out of a year for those 10 years, I got to be a part of a, a, a team as a, you know, over 35 to 50 year old. You know, I, I never, I never left PE class. 
just think about it for a second. I never, ever left PE. I mean, what guy wouldn't want to go to PE class every day for the rest of his life? I never got to leave. You know what I mean? And I always stayed active, so I wasn't able to do what they were doing by any means in the weight room or when we played dodgeball, but I always played. I always got destroyed, but I always, I always played. I got to be in PE class for 15 years. Like we talked about before the podcast, I was talking to you about, you know, going up in the weight room and out benching this kid or whatever it was. I got to do that for, with the best athletes on earth. And yeah. so getting back to, this will take up a long way of time of what happened this, this quarantine period. Yeah, I probably lost some perspective on things in terms of, of my family that if I could do it over again, uh, I probably wouldn't, you know, go so close to the sun. So there was always this kind of like, um, and I, I treated my own son. I try to treat him like my dad treated me, and I try to treat him like, like he was already an 18-year-old or 70-year-old St. Thomas athlete, which is like the biggest mistake that anybody could ever make, right? So I would, if anybody's listening out there and they're going to be a dad, by all means, don't ever do that. Like it's like, the, and, I, and I caught myself. Yeah. I did catch myself. I caught myself probably when my son was. I don't know, 11. Because, you know, my dad's technique doesn't work on everybody. It worked on me, but, it, you know, but it, it doesn't work on everybody. It didn't work on my brother. You know, and certainly, certainly I don't think it worked for my son. But getting back to your question, we go through that period, that two-year period where my expectations and my focus on him and my pushing him to do, do something that maybe he wasn't interested in was at a very high intensity. And I, then I kind of retreat probably retreat too much and then he becomes a wrestler and what was great about that is and i we, we talked about wrestling what was great about wrestling is that first of all i didn't know anything about it that's not that's that's, not, that's the reason why it was great as a dad so whether he, he started or he didn't start or what was going on i couldn't give him any advice so you have to hear me drum like if he had played basketball god for god god help him if he had played basketball yeah <laughs> I would have been on him like white on rice about every single little thing that I had 30 years to learn. You know, he's supposed to know instantly. He had great wrestling coaches. His uh, Jerry Braun is a guy who really helped him. His head coach was Coach Wimberly. And both those guys like molded my son. Thank God for St. Thomas Wrestling because they really molded my son into like a person who is, he's an awesome guy and he can handle a lot thrown his way because of, because of wrestling. Yeah. So they really kind of like took on being his surrogate, you know, dads and, and molded him. But we, meaning my son and I, never had this kind of like workout moment or like this kind of going through something together because we just we just butted heads. You know what I mean? And not not in a bad way, in a father or son way. I've even asked him, I said, listen, can you give me a second? If you have kids, can you give me a second shot? Maybe you can just loan me your kid. You know? <laughs> so, so uh so um, this quarantine period, he came to me and he was like, uh, you know, I'm, I want to work out and um, can you set up a workout program for me? And, and because I'm such a like an attention person, I was like, yeah, I'll do it for you. Only if you, only if you promise to be on my, my secondary Instagram. And he, <laughs> right. he does not like social media at all. Right. So he goes, I'll do it. And so from a father's perspective, and I didn't work out at all with him. That was another thing too. It was just like me just training him. And what was cool about it was going through an eight-week training deal with your son, have it be non 
everybody on the same – it was like being on the same team with, with those guys I mentioned, with the Boozers, with the Northcutt, with the Boses, with, with LaMarcus, and have somebody push it like that, just you and him for eight weeks, three hours a day, and to, and to go through all the ups and downs. I think I might have told you before because we start out with incremental growth, then we hit a valley. And it's like I'm questioning what, my, what I know – I'm questioning internally. I'm questioning him. I go, here we go again. You know, and, and then he's got the same, like, why is my dad acting like this? We need to go through that, come out of that valley, start the rise again, and then see some gains incrementally, then dip about five and a half weeks. And then for me, that six to eight week period of just explosive performance in his numbers and his appearance, I was like, I was as good as any state team I'd ever been with. So I'd probably rank that up. You said, well, you get to choose. I choose that all day long. Yeah. Um, and I'm talking about metrics, too. I'm not talking about, hey, we had a good time. Push-ups, sit-ups, time in the mile and a half, swimming, uh, you know, 500 yards, pull-ups, deadlift, uh, bench, shuttle. We, we did a complete measurement before and after. Not only to see the metrics go through the roof, but then to see him physically become another person and to see him walk around now. And now he's taking that. Now, now he's going to be able to carry it. We're both going to have that memory, number one. And then number two, he is, once you reach a plateau, you're, depending on your age, of course, like I'm never going to be the same jump shooter I was at 52 that I was at 22, but once you reach a certain plateau, it's really easy to get. Getting to the plateau is the hard part. Once you get there, it's, it's easier to get back. So he, whatever he wants to do with his life, I know he wants to do a job that's very physically demanding. Once he, he'll be able to get there and now move beyond there, I think. Yeah. It's interesting. When you texted me that video of him, kind of like the montage of, of your son training and working out, it brought back a memory of sitting in your class in 2004, 2005, you had played a video of a montage video of your son working out. I think he was four years yeah. old, maybe at the time. Yeah. I think yeah. you were playing eye of the tiger in the background. Yeah. It might've been. And so, yeah, I mean, you've been obviously such a committed dad and you might be a little hard on yourself on, you know, uh, things that you regret, but it seems like you did a really good job overall. And me with a son on the way, we uh, just crossed the 34 week mark on uh, my wife's pregnancy. And uh, yeah, I mean, I could see, me having a similar parenting style, you know what I mean? And just like, uh, I don't want to push him into like, I, I was pushed into hockey as a kid. My parents are French Canadian. Uh, my dad grew up poor and he always wanted to play hockey and he, he had to work and pay for his own equipment. And by the time he was a teenager, he was able to, but then with me, with his son, he was doing relatively well. And he put me in skates when I was like three Went to uh, Florida Panther camp in 94, I think it was her second year. Um, then I went to all these camps. I went to camps in Quebec and it burnt me out. You know what I mean? And like it got to the, especially in South Florida, I just kept begging them. Like, I just want to play basketball. I want to play, ba I, like, I don't want to play hockey. All my friends play basketball. And he was so heartbroken. He's like, dude, like, look at everything I'm doing for you here. You know, and I'm looking back on it now, like just the sacrifices that he and my mom, both of them, they were making so many sacrifices for me to play hockey. And, uh, but yeah, as, and as we were talking earlier, once high school hit, I kind of just like, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to play sports. I mean, I did recreationally. I was playing pickup games all the time, but high school, I was just so focused on girls and, and partying and, 
kind of, kind of. So I think it was a struggle for my parents to keep me on the right path. And I got really involved in music. And this brings up actually something that I, I wanted to, to mention to you. One of the standout memories I have with you, it was prom night, my, my prom night, 2005. You had pulled me aside and we were chatting for maybe five, 10 minutes. And full disclosure, I was hammered. I was very drunk. I don't know if you were able to tell or not. It seemed like, it seemed, it seemed like in those days, uh, it seemed like, I'll just go back to my time at prom, that, like in the 80s, it seemed like everyone showed up and they probably were, you know, but I think there's a whole different, like, you know, as you go on culturally, there's a whole different level. Like now it's like a complete code, you know, whatever, on, on anything where it seems like the farther you go back in time, much more was acceptable. Like not wearing a seatbelt. If you don't wear a seatbelt in the 70s, no one cares. As a matter of fact, if you tell, you tell someone in the 70s to put a seatbelt on, they might say, I'm not going to. Why? If you tell someone today, it's like, okay, it's, you'd be wondering why they weren't wearing a seatbelt. Right. You'd be like, yeah, of course. <laughs> okay, so you go ahead. You were hammered. I was there. Full disclosure, I didn't know. <laughs> yeah. I could cut some of this stuff out. But uh <laughs> Um, no, no, you're good. We're joking yeah. about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, we're we're having a one-on-one chat, and you asked me, Derek, what what do you want to do with your life? What do you want to do when you get out of here? And I was like, honestly, it's, it's like I, I want to do something in music. I don't know what it is, but I really want to be in music. And you grabbed my shoulder and you looked at me with this intense stare. Do it. Go and do it, Derek. Right? You grabbed me by the shoulder. Go and do it. And yeah, yeah so I I went on. To college, I, I went and uh, got a degree in business with a focus in entertainment business. I also had a focus in recording arts. I uh, worked as an intern in a bunch of studios. I was recording a bunch of music. Moved to New York City. I worked for an entertainment marketing agency. Moved to LA. Got a job with uh, Silverback Artist Management. I became the head advertiser and marketer for bands like Slightly Stupid. Um, and a whole bunch of bands under them that were globe, touring around the globe. And, uh, so yeah, I, I, I was in the music industry for a good 10 years. But in high school, I really didn't apply myself. I just, yeah, I wasn't a great student. You know, I think I was relatively smart. I just didn't open the books, you know. But you as a teacher, I felt like you looked beyond that. There was more to the books, I think, for you as a teacher and a motivator and yeah, so it just always stuck with me. It's, I think you were the first person to tell me to take it seriously. Music sounded like such a, especially in South Florida, away from the entertainment capitals of, of the country. It was just, you know, it didn't seem that realistic. You're like, dude, go do it. And I, uh, I appreciate that because one of the things that I think that I saw in all of my students was I saw like a little bit of me in there, a little bit of the things that I didn't do out of fear or out of whatever. And then as I got older as a teacher and in your era too, and that's what I recognize today, they're really the only walls are the walls that people create for themselves. And just because they don't like my world history class or this math class, doesn't listen, there's something to be said for working in those deals. There's all these thresholds or hoops that we have to jump through, but it doesn't mean because you can't or won't jump through a hoop at 17 doesn't mean that you won't necessarily go on to do unbelievable things at 25, 35, or 45. And I don't know why there's a small percentage of teachers who think that, that that's not true or, 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 or even maybe some of them want it to be true. 
in terms of, hey, you can't do this, you can't do X, therefore you can't do Y. I just think that, especially in today's world too, where you know you can get on in terms of learning, acquiring knowledge or a skill. You could look. I'm doing it right now as I'm trying to train myself to get back into shape. I, I go on Instagram. There's this prehab guys, and I can literally learn physical therapy on my own. So whatever you're motivated to do, you can do. And so I'm, I'm glad you said that because it makes me feel good that I have that kind of like um, idea that don't pigeonhole somebody because of world history or economics or whatever it is because it's just it's it's not a means to an end. You know, or, or excuse me, it's not the end in itself. It's just the means. Right. And, and the failure in one thing can lead to your best success in something else. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That's a cool story, man. I really, I'm, I really appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, as someone who didn't apply himself in school, I mean, I, <laughs> one of the last days at school, I remember, I th- who was my homeroom teacher? Miss Moran, I think it was. And, uh, yeah, we're we're cleaning out our lockers, and I went to her. I was like, I don't know the combination of my locker. <laughs> so she pulls out she pulls out this book. She's like, oh my god, Derek, find finds the combination, put it in. I give her my books, and literally it's like like cracking, like they've never been open, not once. And uh, so yeah, I didn't take myself seriously. So it's not a shock that a lot of teachers wouldn't have taken me seriously, but you did. You know what I mean? And like, I always had the support of my parents, but they didn't necessarily know my, my dreams of going into the music industry and doing whatever it was that I wanted to do. So you were really that, like that first domino and they supported me, you know, as I, you know, after high school and whatnot, but you were, yeah, you, I think you were that first domino. I was like, yeah, maybe I should, <laughs> I, mean, I, I could, I could take this seriously. I can't tell you honestly, like, all the things we've talked about, all the all the all the high-profile people, everything. That moment that you just shared with me and brought back to me that that probably better than than any other moment of either being a part of the state championship or being a part of St. Thomas football or or my own my, even my own career because I don't know it's it's those moments with like don't take this the wrong way we're just like ordinary what i would consider somebody in their ordinary life or a kid 14 to 18 year old kids it's those moments like like that that hit me the moment the most and even like in a a football moment in that 2019 the greatest team ever assembled on earth on earth there's 10 pros on that team it's the kid that comes to me in the pilates room or i forget what they call now they get into it it's the room that overlooks the football field now in in the smith center and we're up there and you had all those guys in that team, the Linders, the Bernards, the Whites, the Budocs, Dorsett, Joyner, Cody Riggs, all these guys. And it, that moment, and that sticks out for me the most when he said, you know what, this kid, I haven't mentioned his name, he says, I want to share something with you that I'm, I deal with depression all the time. And this, this program has really helped me with my depression. And I'm like, man, that's – yeah." That's worth way more to me than anything. And that kind of memory sticks out. I really appreciate you sharing that with me. And now I'm just going to, when we get off this podcast, I'm going to go tell my family that. And they're, <laughs> they're, they're going to be like, get out of here, Rob. Yeah. <laughs> it's that family dynamic. And back to your son, I don't want to forget this point. I don't think it's wrong to push anybody. But what I do think is wrong and what I'm guilty of, and maybe some other fathers is, it's okay to push. 
it's not okay to project. Right. So in the projection that takes place is you project St. Thomas football under you know, your own basketball career under a footballer, or you project someone who you really weren't. Like, I wasn't a star, so therefore you have to be to, to make up for my shortcomings. Like, right. and, and those things, or, or how about this one? You want your kid to be good, not for your kid, but for you. You know, when you start getting into that realm, and I've been, I'm guilty of probably all those things. Um, when you start getting into that realm, that's where I think that you, you know, better take a long moment of reflection. That can be self-destructive for everybody. That's why this was kind of like a redemption of some of those shortcomings of the dad. This quarantine period. I, I, got, I always tell about a second, a second chance. Yeah. Oh, it's awesome. Cool. So I'm going to wind down to some of the last few questions that I, I had written down. I like to close with a lot of these. Main one that I always ask my guests is if there's any books or documentaries that you would recommend. Anything that had a, an effect on you or a, a large impact on your life. It doesn't have to be sports related or coaching related. It could be anything. God, I know there is. Hold on. First of all, I love TED Talks. There's a couple of TED Talks. I forget the guy's first name, but it's the one that it kind of introduced me to um, the power of play and play from an evolutionary standpoint. There's a, there's a bunch of TED Talks on that. Reading about what I'm, what I'm kind of getting into now later in life, um, and I've been into it in the quarantine period, is meditation and mindfulness. Just go a little deeper into that and trying to get into a meditative state. Is that more recent, well, recent for you or... Yeah, that's, I've always kind of like, kind of like bounced it uh, around. And I even in my later years, probably 2015 to 2016, and this is really because my wife's a yoga teacher that I've kind of got into putting the football team in a meditative, walking them through a meditative state for like five minutes. But I've kind of dug a little deeper on, on meditation. So I've probably been able to meditate now for I don't know, 10 minutes a day for eight to 10 weeks. And now that I'm back working more traditionally, we're not, we're still virtual. I've noticed that a lot of the things that I have the luxury of doing, I'm not, I haven't been able to do like meditation or breath practice, not being as consistent with it. That I'm really, really excited about in terms of personal growth, because what I've got out of it is this, is that Rob Biasati, I am not my thoughts. My thoughts just emerge out of my consciousness and whatever that is, whatever I'm ruminating about or, you know, or whatever I'm being paranoid about or whatever I'm worried about or whatever my regret is. So the reason why I think meditation is powerful for me is, is that when I'm meditating, I recognize that those thoughts are just emerging and that they're just thoughts and it's not really me. And I realize I can see the me behind the thoughts. And then I get into that meditative state and it's calming. And the breath practice for me too has also been like really calming in the sense that there's such this mind-body connection that, and trust me when I tell you, I am a novice. I am not an expert meditator. I'm not. You're not Wim, Wim Hof? No. <laughs> Joe Rookie trying to add another tool into his, in his toolkit. But the breath practice has been great for me too because um. I use the four, seven, eight breath technique. I use the lion's breath as a yoga. I use this thing called PMR, which is progressive muscle relaxation technique. Um, but the four, seven, eight specifically, so it's four breaths in through your nose, 
you hold for a seven count and then you exhale on an eight count. And it's all the breath in and that eight counts all the breath out. If you, if, for me, if I cycle through that seven times, regardless of my emotional state, um, my body is telling my mind, my body or my breath is telling my body to calm down and using my breath and my body are telling my mind, whatever you're stressed about, you can't be because your body is going into a state of relaxation. So it's really you tripping your mind into a state of calmness. And then I don't know if there's a podcast. Oh man, I wish I knew this guy's name because he said it. He just said it. I'm gonna, I'll, I'll, I'll hit you with this because this is really powerful for me. It's Mark Divine Seal Fit. And I forget, this is what I will talk about because this is the truest thing in the world, in my mind, as a novice. But for me, being good at basketball or being good as a football coach or being good as a dean or a teacher was all about this extreme passion that usually burns me out. I hit a wall and I don't know where else to go. And then I end up receding and, and, and whatever. And I have to rebuild those stores of passion. The way this guy explained breath practice to me was, is that you're really able to kind of like modulate between the states of mind where you can go from calm and then amp it up and then dial back into medium or dial back into calm and because of your awareness is greater. I've actually felt that in the 478 breath practice because it just brings you into this very calm state. Like I wish I would have had it as a basketball player or as a, as a coach too because I know I use it as the dean because my conversations are, are, are very, there's a lot of uh, conversations where people are emotionally disagreeable because they're dealing with their kid. I'm usually delivering bad news and I'm a human being. So sometimes I take their pushback as personal. I know it's helping me there. I know it's helping me as a speaker because it's my body is telling my mind, what are you freaked out about? Like, everything's good. Because my mind can take over my body. My mind can run through all these kind of like ruminations of why I'm mad or why did this person do this or these thoughts that creep in and they stay there. Um, and then my mind can affect my body. I'll start eating more. I'll stress eat. I won't sleep, blah, blah, blah. Uh, whereas you can just turn that thing around and be like, no, no, no. Your breath can control your body, can control your mind. And that's what he was talking about. But he was talking about using it using your awareness, just because you're aware and calm doesn't mean you can't amp it up into aggression. So right. did you ever see, are you a Star Wars fan? Well, not, not, I'm not a big Star Wars geek, but yeah. Well, oh, there's, there's the dark side, there's the light side. There's a, there's a scene in The Phantom Menace where Qui-Gon Jinn, the, 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 the guy who trains Obi-Wan, Obi-Wan trains Darth Vader, if you know the story, he's going to fight this guy named Darth Maul. And Obi-Wan is a young Jedi, and he's all pumped up, and he wants to do this lightsaber battle with Darth Maul. And Qui-Gon, I think his name's Qui-Gon Jinn, he gets into this meditative state before the fight's about to begin. And I always looked at that movie like, how? because I could never do that. My method of being in conflict with somebody was bring as much passion and force to kind of like stifle and, and, just, and just completely eviscerate the other person's passion. When you see that scene in that movie, and I've known people that are able to do this in the basketball court. Like I played with a lot of passion. They were able to be calm and then kind of dictate through awareness when they were going to use X amount of passion to their benefit. And I, and I, I think of that movie is that here a guy is about to face the battle of his lifetime. In fact, he doesn't actually die in the battle, but he's calm before the battle. 
You know what I mean? Right. He's a state of calmness. He doesn't need to work himself up into a emotional fever pitch. And that's been my go-to for so long um, that I find that practicing breath practice and meditation allows me to, uh, it allows for more awareness. Yeah. Yeah. How, how receptive are high school athletes to that, to meditation? I'll tell you what, unbelievably in my later years. Okay. So as my game started, I started really toning down my games and the rules started to be like, really like, at first there were no rules. We had something called no rules dodgeball where, I mean, you talk about, I've never been in the military, obviously never been in combat, but no rules dodgeball is where, Everybody knows it wasn't dodgeball. You're trying to throw a bullet to the opposing team across a line, right? Well, when the coach calls no rules dodgeball, you can actually turn your attention to your own teammate and hit them right next to you. Or you can tackle them in the wrestling room. It's chaos, right? So it's such chaos that it will take your, it will take your breath away. Yeah. Seriously, you can walk out of that moment because you don't know where the, it's going to come from, whether it be someone on your own team or whatever. So we were doing that. Um, my point is, is that toward the end of my career in, in, in football, everything was so structured. Like, hey, look, can't hit anybody below the belt. We had like four coaches monitoring everything. Any face shots, we changed the balls. You couldn't use a volleyball. You had to use these like uh, Nerf balls that wouldn't go as far or as fast. And then I even found then I was like on edge because someone would get hit in the face and, you know, you got a hundred kids in one space. Um, so I did... I'm not saying I use meditation, but I did this um, three-minute, I wouldn't even call it breath practice. I didn't even know what I was doing. I'll tell you what happened. I went to this hypnotist for my own sleep problems, and he walked me through this five-step process of relaxation. So I started doing this with the kids at the end of football. I think young people are more receptive to a lot of things than older people. I think I started tripping the kids into a meditative state. I was doing it as like a parlor trick. I will try things in the class and in the weight room like, I'll just come up and make stuff up sometimes and be like, hey, we're doing this. And they'll be like, what? And I'm like, yeah, here's a, uh, with those things, here's a Django thing. Django has been used to measure teamwork in all societies since the Egyptians. I'll just tell people something, right? All of these kids. <laughs> and then all of a sudden you got these kids like intensely focused on Django. Like, these two, you know what I mean? So I think it was one of those things where I took this hypnotist I got for sleep. I came in, I got the team together, and I sold them, the other kids. So I sold them on this thing that I was just making up. Yeah. And they started tripping into a meditative state where they'd, they'd get up after three or four minutes. And then we'd try for five minutes, and they would be like, oh, man, I can't tell you how relaxed I feel. So I never really got into it until the quarantine period where I started listening to the podcast. This guy, Mark Define, who trained SEALs, he had a guy in breath practice, and there's Tara Brock on the, in, uh, who has her own podcast. And she has a guided meditation. Uh, my son, by the way, who can't stand it because he's, I've been telling him to do it. Cause everything that I didn't do, everything that I didn't learn, I want him to have it in his twenties. You know what I mean? Like yeah. John, you got, like I'm always freaking out. Like John, John, <laughs> meditation, dog, meditation. Bro. And it's like, what? Get right. away from me. Like if someone would have told you old Rob, 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 meditation. I'd be like, just get away from me right now. Right. But I know for me, like you asked what I've been into, I think it's the uh, meditation, the breath practice, some podcasts. I, I learned, I did, I've been into like uh, 
stuff about flow states. I think there's some books. I think Stealing Fire is one that, that comes to mind in terms of, I got my whole library behind me here. Stealing Fire is one of them. Anti-Fragile by Nicholas uh, Talib is it? God, anti-fragile is what we've been talking about this whole time. His theory is, is that if you, if, like for instance, what we're going through for the pandemic, here's an idea on, on anti-fragile that I'm sure uh, Talib, I think is his last name, would talk about. So everyone's, first of all, I agree with everything, social distancing, masks. I believe that the virus is real. I believe that we should all do our part as a community, but you could take it too far because a system that's too perfect is ripe for a collapse. So let's say that everyone continues to wear their mask, continues to socially distance, even when the pandemic's gone. That means that the next, aren't we supposed to have a little bit of bad, or a little bit of virus in us at all times to protect us from a major disruption? That's his idea that if you have too much order in any system, you're ripe for a collapse. So I, 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 like, I like this kind of like oppositional type thinking. Sure. Meditation, breath practice, that I think is what I've been kind of like into lately. For the sake of sounding too much like Joe Rogan, have you ever tried a sensory deprivation tank? I, I, I am willing to do that. I, just, I haven't done that yet. Okay. Yeah. I, yeah. I've done it a few. Uh, yeah, I've done it a few times. It's been a while, but it's interesting because I've tried to meditate, and you know, it's it's always a. It's tough. It's tough for me. My brain's constantly running. Um, right. I did do. I think the app was called Headspace, uh, the guided meditations. I did that for a while. But yeah, when I did a sensory deprivation tank, I've done it maybe four or five times. And each time was three hour session. And you're literally sitting there with zero sensory input, no light, no sound. The water is the same temperature as your skin. There's a bunch of salt in there. So you're very buoyant. You're not feeling anything. And after like 20 minutes, you lose complete orient. Like just you don't know where, you know, up is down, down is up. and You lose everything. So you're literally just thoughts, you know, you're just in this vacuum. Yes. Yeah, so it, it's, it's really, really interesting. It ramps up the meditative state. It forces me into it. What, what happens? To, what ha I'm curious. What happens to time for you? Does time get longer? Does it get compressed? Like what happens? I, it, it varied for me each experience. It, they weren't all the same. Each, each time was very different. Uh, so there were times where it felt like I was in there for 20 minutes. I hear a beeping of like, Hey, your three hours are up. I was like, what the wow. hell? Like, you know, so it was, and there's other times where it felt like I, I spent the whole lifetime in there. Like just you know, the, the sense of time just is very, very strange. How just completely thrown off it gets. But there, there was one time I did it where uh, I was getting really frustrated. I just couldn't get to that mental state that I was hoping to get to. And I just kept getting really frustrated. So I made the decision of, you know, what, I'm just going to start reflecting on my life. Let's see how far I could get into that of, all right, here's the day Derek is born. Here's the moment that Derek's laying in a sensory deprivation tank. Let's try to tell that whole story while I'm sitting here. Like, what else am I going to do? I can't get in this meditative state. And I did it. Right. it. It literally felt like I was sitting there watching a movie of my life. And these memories that I hadn't thought of in probably over a couple of decades started to come up. And it was... That's awesome. I've done that too. And that is like a real like mind bender because I'm, all of our lives take these twists and turns. And to go back and to think about something that when you were like seven or eight or this moment at 10 or then 12 and then 15 and then 25, and you're just like, whoa, yeah. I've really lived a long time. I've, I've had these experiences and it's like, 
Yeah, it's gonna. I think that when you have your, you know, your, your child and then you'll do that again. Like I'm, I'm doing that with my children. Like, cause time is right. Time is moving by so fast. They're 35 right now. I mean, it's been almost 20 years since we were in class together. It's like it's mind blowing how fast it goes. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure I'm going to experience it even faster once the kids here. Right. That's what you always hear. Yeah. yeah. You're a decade in the music industry. Think about you spent a decade in the music industry. It's like boom, boom. I spent 10 years. As, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, or it, 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 a season has passed and my time in St. Thomas football is over with. Um, right. And man, I never, there was a time period where I never thought it would end. Yeah. Now here it is. It's over with and it's gone, but I'm not sad. That's, I can say this. There's some, there, obviously in this podcast, I've talked about my regrets and things that I would do differently and whatever things that I learned from, but one thing I have learned is that everything has a season to it, and I, I do not look back on at least that. I look at that. I look back on that with a lot of fondness and a lot of great memories, and really fortunate that it, like that Dr. Seuss quote, like, "Don't be sad that it's over. Be, be glad that it happened." And that's how I look at that. That's how I look at my, my basketball playing career. That's how I look at my my mom and my dad. I mean, uh, that's how I look at St. Thomas when I went to school there. There was a little regret there, you know, being a new kid. But when I look back on it, that was my, more my issue. I have a lot of fondness. I have so much fondness for students like you that were in my class. And, and to have that experience at that moment in time, I mean, that's not going to happen again. That will never, there'll, there'll, there'll probably never be a time at homecoming or prom where I grab a kid by the shoulder and be like, hey, man, freaking do this. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, we're going to be in the music industry like, I'm probably not going to have that moment again because I just, I'm not 35 anymore. I don't, I'm not going to play dodgeball again. I'm not gonna, <laughs> I'll, never, I'll never play no rules dodgeball again. <laughs> right. But, but I'm really glad that it happened. I'm glad that everyone escaped injury free. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I got to tell you, man, I mean, you, you've had a, a strong impact on me and on a lot of people. Uh, when I started doing this podcast, good friend of mine, AJ Barks, who he kept saying, oh, you got to get coach B on there, man. You got to get coach B. And I kept putting out these episodes. He's like, dude, coach B would be perfect. You got to get coach B. Once I reached out to you, you said, you do it. I, I told AJ, Hey, we're going to do it. And he must've texted. I don't know how many kids that I graduated with that we, that AJ and I graduated with. It's like, Hey, Derek's got this podcast. He's going to have coach B on. You got any questions for him? And I mean, I heard back from Greg Milligan, Mike Doherty, Kelly Abel, Bo Brzezinski. Um, I'm forgetting maybe like a, a dozen other names, but like, oh, that's great. And they, they sent some questions. So a lot of the questions I sent you, I kind of reworded some of them, but a lot of them came from them. I can't even tell you, like you just mentioned those names we've been talking about, like, you know, the icons of St. Thomas, you know, the Hall of Fame football people, but those names, you know, you know, the, the Obels, the Brzezinski's, the Milligans. I mean, what a just classic. Yeah. Family. So much history with Drew Milligan, who was on my first JV team. Greg Milligan. I want you to, like, Greg Milligan is, the, like, the first person I ever personal trained. He's, like, client number one. Like, without Greg Milligan, there's no Rob Biasati personal trainer. Ergo, there's no Rob Biasati strength and conditioning coach. Uh, AJ Bart's like, man, that kid played for me. And what just like, what a, what a great worker. What a, what a kid with a great effort. Like not a, I mean, talk about a kid who can deal with any adversity and just keeps on pushing forward. 
I mean, totally stand-up guy, not not an attention seeker, just a hard hat and a box lunch, going to work every day, whether it be in school or the basketball court. I'm sure whatever he's doing now. Uh, the, la- the last the last few years, AJ gives me a phone call once every three months or so yeah. to catch up, and uh, I think he does that with a lot of the the people that we went to high school with. It was one of the reasons that it made me want to start this podcast. Every conversation I was having with him, I'm like, dude, th- these are amazing conversations. And he had a list of questions that he prepared before calling me as we were catching up. He's like, here's some questions I got for you. And he would write down my answers. And the next phone call we'd get on, he'd, he'd bring some of those back up. Like, yeah, like a few months ago, you said this, you said that. It was just, I don't know, just the the intent that he had behind all those conversations and the it's a yeah he's a special guy for sure Derek here's my biggest fear right now is that like with all these kids that I've been so fortunate to be around like who did I who did I not mention that's such a critical right person that in my life that like I'm just telling you like AJ Bartz I mean anybody that I've been involved with team wise is has a special place anybody who's in my class special place in my heart but there's so many kids like I just mentioned the Milligans, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I know when it happened. Fort Lauderdale gym. Think about this. Fort Lauderdale gym, coaching JV basketball, early 2000s. I walk out and um, Milligan says, "Hey, would you uh, you think about training my kids? You know, in the off season?" And I think Chris Curis got in on that deal. And then Kelly Abel has this uh, uncle, Dave Abel, and I'm close with Bill and Adam. Uh, and Alex, I'll, who I'm very, very close with, I started training them. And from there, that just, it, it was all organic. It was like, then I started training a bunch of other kids. And I had this company called Game Speed that led to St. Thomas Football. St. Thomas Football led to Endgame Adventures. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. now, now we talk about transformation. Because on my wall right here, I just wrote down, I did the quarantine, like everybody else has caused me to reflect. What's, hey, what's your... What really is your ethos? What is, what, is the, what is your code that you want to live by? So I wrote it down. It's right here. It says, I want to never quit. And I wrote that because there's been moments in my life where I have quit because I ran out of passion. You know what I mean? And it says, be ready to fight. And I don't mean fight in the physical sense or even in the metaphysical sense. I mean, just have that kind of like be able to get up off the mat. That's what I mean by being a fighter. And I said, perpetual transformation. You know, struggle equals learning, have a growth mindset, movement is life, and character is destiny. And, and I wrote down a guy named Heraclides, that's the quote, character is destiny. And when I look, think about character, I think about four traits on a spectrum, because listen, we all have character flaws, so it's on a spectrum of courage, justice, temperance, and wisdom, all the classical virtues. But I used to think about these virtues as being binary, like either you have courage or you don't have courage. And, and that way of thinking is, in my opinion, is, is not the right way to think about justice or courage or wisdom. It's moving on a spectrum. It's, it's the yin and yang of it. It's not whether you have it or not. It's whether you're moving from a place where you're getting more of it. Because you could be starting at the bottom. You're never going to be 100% with any of these things. But you could be near the top. But wherever you're at, try to move incrementally more toward those spaces. Right? And so that's... That's another thing with the quarantine. Um, you know, I don't know how we got on that, but yeah, <laughs> well, it's perfect because I, I I was going to ask you uh, in in closing to everybody listening 
They could be young athletes. They could be guys my age dealing with depression, dealing with setbacks with the pandemic or people that are, you know, just athletes. Wh whoever's listening, there's any, just they got one piece of wisdom that you would leave on them or just some advice, I guess, life advice. And a lot of what you just said, I think really plays on that. But if you had anything uh, to add. So I think that again, you know, you asked me if I, my last parting comment is that Angie Bain was a way, way better teacher than I was ever. But my ability to focus on a very tight, narrow window of things, like either a jump shot or, you know, Greek philosophy, right? Specifically, some of the pre-Socratics like Heracles, probably mispronouncing that, Plato, Aristotle, just ways of thinking, but most importantly, Stoicism. So there's a couple quotes by some Stoics. The pre-Socratic is a guy named Heracles. Oh, the Daily Stoic. Yeah, there you go. Boom. Thanks to AJ, I've been reading this book. Yeah, it's almost like, um, I think people have a misconception about stoicism. It's not a religion, it's an operating system just for you to find peace. And I, buy, we talk about spectrum. I mean, I am by no means, I'm, I am, I'm in the infancy of learning that. I'm not a stoic by any means. I just read some of it. But Heracles was not a stoic, but he says character is destiny. But there's this other stoic quote that I'm trying to kind of come to grips with. What is destiny? And what is free will? So all those things we talked about, like the Milligan starting my personal training program, which led to St. Thomas football, or Chief calling me when I'm in North Carolina in the middle of the night and saying, hey, I have a basketball position for you in Florida. And then me want that, that leading to being part of Coach Smith's best, most storied football program of all time. So that's all destined or my car accident, right? So the reason why I'm kind of locked in on that character is destiny quote by Heracles is because no one knows what, what's going to happen next. No one. And no one knows what position you're going to be in, either through your own good fortune or misfortune. But the thing you can control is, are you moving toward that spectrum on those classical virtues when you're in those moments of, of achievement or when you're in those moments of abject failure is, can you be wise? Can you be courageous? Can you be just? Can you be modest? In those moments that's 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 where your free will that's what the choice that you do have i wish i would have known this earlier but i'm getting it at 52 that's the thing that i'm getting with so a lot of times when i when i think about these certain situations i'll google stoic quotes and the one i just googled recently is fate leads the willing and drags the reluctant right so it's like whatever situation i'm going to face tomorrow it's not that i'm casually led by my destiny it's that I'm making the most of whatever that is, bad situation or good situation. But if I completely reject my destiny and I don't acknowledge it, and I don't, and I, and I rebel against it, I have sour grapes over it, then what's going to happen is it's going to be a, it's going to be a pretty traumatizing, uh, not a good experience that I'm bringing upon myself instead of like seeing the best I can in every moment. And again, these are things that I have not perfected. These are things that I'm trying to do, but that's, that's where I'm at now. I'm really, I'm really, really trying hard to do it. I'm really consciously thinking about trying hard to do these things. Right. And you've trained yourself to make the choice to do that, right? Because before you're not maybe aware that it's a choice, but once you become yeah. aware of it, yeah. I wasn't aware. I wasn't aware of all I was, I was, everything I did was operating on how much attention I could get for my jump shot or if I had to outpassion somebody. Yeah. Really, that's what it was. It was like if I got into a situation 
I'm trying to outpassion them, right? Which I think I have a lot of passion, which I think I, I can do, but there's been times when that, that, that third year in the JV basketball season, it didn't work. It didn't work in 2008. And um, a lot of times there's a lot of, there's a lot of collateral damage when you're going to bring, I mean, let's face it, you know, you, you can be a nuclear power plant, but you know, if something goes wrong, you're going to have a meltdown. Yeah. Right. Like, so there's, 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 a, there's different sides of that equation where I think that if you learn another technique, it's not that you can't use passion. It's just when, and where are you going to use it? And then when, and where are you going to accept your destiny and make the best out of it instead of like, because there have been times where I said, you know what, I don't care what the situation is. I am going to take this round peg and stick it in a square hole. And I don't care. I don't care what the cost is. And it wouldn't even be something that was where a million dollars would be on the line or money. It wouldn't even be something where, um, you know, my family was in danger. I, I just get on these like, like end game adventures, for instance, my travel deal. Like I would just be like, I'm going to push this situation to its utmost limit. Damn, Filipinos full speed ahead, and you know I just don't think that not in end game adventures, but in different areas of life, you don't. You should be taken by the river, not necessarily always swimming upstream against it. Just because you have success doing that doesn't mean it's a good life strategy. Sure. Yeah. Um, so it's a beautiful answer. <laughs> probably all over the place. That's the nature of me. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate you taking the time and. Yeah. Uh, I think we've been chatting for uh, a little over two hours. So it's, it's been awesome, man. I, again, right. thank, thank you so much. I usually end these episodes with music, but I think in your case, I would really love to end it. If uh, you have any of these clips that you could send my way and I'll do it in post-production is because uh, I've seen those famous motivational clips that you have now. Can we not do that? Well, I can do it, but you know, it's funny to talk about, the way the where I get things like the Jenga thing. The Jenga thing is actually a true story. I mean, I, I would tell. Listen, it's great working with kids, and I don't know if it's um, I don't know if it's educational malpractice or it's or whatever it is by telling like a football team that we're going to play a game of Jenga between the offensive and defense. And oh, by the way, the ancient Egyptians used to do this to find out <laughs> not be able to get a boat on the Nile River or whatever it was. And kids are like, "Are you serious?" Like, um, but I, I'll tell you the one so. I forget what year it was, but Roger Harriet's the football coach now of St. Thomas football. And it was, I think it was his first, it was his first year. Understand this, like in St. Thomas football, there's years I, I probably went to one or two games, even training the whole team. Cause I would go on to the next thing. I'd go into basketball season after the conditioning program where I'd be doing end game adventures or I'd be traveling in my time. I wouldn't necessarily be focused in on football during the football season. Um, and this is true for most years. And Roger Harris becomes the coach, and he's like, Rob, I want you to come to all the games. And I was the dean of students, so I had to go to the home games as the kind of like chaperone for the student body. But then he started bringing me to all the games. Like Coach Smith used to take me to the out-of-town games. He wanted me to go to all the games. So um, th that's a whole other story. But to make a long story short, one time I never talked – I never, ever, ever, ever talked to the football team before a football game. My talks with them were in preseason. He invited me to talk to the team. So this is a true story. So there's this movie called Fury with Brad Pitt, right? And have you seen it? Yep. Okay. So I'll go walk my dog Scooby at night, like six o'clock at night. And I will, I would walk the dog 
uh, and repeat these words over and over again. It's a prayer. I would say the best job I ever had. Best, and I was I talk to myself sometimes. I'm talking to myself, walking my dog. Best job I ever had. Best job I ever had. The best job I've ever had. Right. Just talking to myself. My neighbor probably think I'm crazy. And then I would recite. There's this scene where they're all going to die in the tank, and I forget that. I think it's Shia LaBeouf or whatever his name is. Um, he, he recites this prayer to War Daddy, right? And War Daddy's this character that you wouldn't think knew anything about the Bible. He never drank, he never engaged in anything else until this moment. He finally takes a drink and, 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 and the Sheila LaBeouf character recites this prayer. And the prayer is, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, who shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. And War Daddy says, Isaiah chapter 8, section 13 or whatever. And then and the other guy goes, yeah, Don. Yeah, right. So Coach Harriet's like, you want to say something to the team? And so for whatever reason, <laughs> I said, everybody get in here tight. Get in here tight. And they all got in tight. And I go, and I heard the voice of the Lord. And I stopped. And I got silent, just like we're getting silent. And I stopped, and I stood up, and I I said, everybody repeat after me. And I said it just like that, that kind of yeah. acting and emotion. And I said, I heard the voice of the Lord. And they said, I heard the voice of the Lord. The whole team, they whispered it. Same, same. And who shall I send? And who shall I send? And who will go for us? And who will go for us? And I said, and I said, send me, 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 send me. And the whole team starts going crazy, right? And it's electric. It's completely electric. It's electric. 110 guys screaming, send me electric. I get my breath taken away, taken away. And then the coaching staff look at me like, dog, <laughs> unbelievable. And I'm looking at them like, that's right. You know I am. <laughs> and another kid comes up to me, a wide receiver from FAU comes up to me and he goes, everyone's completely, their, their breath's taken away. He comes to me and he goes, coach, you stole that line from the movie Fury. <laughs> and I said, yeah, you're right. I go, don't tell anybody. <laughs> And I was, I used that line for the next two, three years to the point where now I couldn't stop. Yeah. They wanted me to do that before every game. And I did it for before every game for two or three years. It became like a St. Thomas thing. By the way, have you ever heard of Hugo Wego? No. Okay. So 2010, there's a movie called Backdraft. And in that movie, firefighters about to fall into a fire. And there's another firefighter holding him, and he looks up and he goes, "Let me go." And the and the, the Kurt Russell character looks at the other firefighter who's holding above the pit of the fire, and he goes, "You go, we go," and they both fall into the fire, right? So right. I started breaking the huddle, "You go, we go," based on the plagiarism of the Backdraft movie. And then before I know it, every T-shirt, every slogan, everything on St. Thomas, I'm walking around, it's all "You go, we go," and I'm thinking to myself. 
this is all the movie backdrop. <laughs> right. And that motivational speech is straight out of fury. 100%. I must have watched that movie a million times and then talked to myself, walking my dog in the dark, right. reciting that prayer in my mind just because I love that scene so much. Right. Well, it's not even, I mean, the words are powerful themselves, but it's, it's also you, you know what I mean? Like it, watching that video, I mean, I hadn't seen it in years. I don't remember what year it was. I saw it. I just saw it in my Facebook newsfeed. I was like, right. wow. Like it was just so powerful, your energy. And then obviously the 110 people that were in there, like you said, yeah, it was just an electric moment. Well, we, there's been a couple of times where we've done it, literally. I know we did it before the state championship. We did it against... I, I forget. I forget when it was. It happened spontaneously. I didn't know what to say. So I just went with that because I've been re reciting it in my neighborhood. <laughs> and, and then, and then there's been a couple of moments, one big state championship game where, you know, you, sometimes you, sometimes you're involved in a moment where you really, really hit it. And like people are super, super emotional, especially a football team. Like football is that weird sport, man, where like, it's different than basketball because every you're working for 10 and a half months. You're running these guys for 10. It's a big process leading up to this one moment. And so um, I, I forget what, what state championship was. It was either 2014, 15, or 16, but I uh, walked into that deal and I looked around and everyone was so emotional. And we had been saying it for a couple of times beforehand. And, and then we went in and everyone got tight. Um, and it was just at the end of it, I don't think there's a team on earth that could have beat us because we're just so jacked up out of our minds. Yeah. And then it's funny, as time goes on, as time goes on, um, they still want it. But, you know, someone would punch me in the rib cage in the huddle or like, you know, like, <laughs> it would be a mosh pit or I'd be floating above the mosh pit or whatever, or they'd throw the paper at me at the end, you know what I mean? Like, so. Yeah, so I don't know. It's fun. It's, it awesome. was fun, and that and that that you know that's come to an end. Um, you'll you know I'll never be involved in that again. But I'm so glad it happened. I, I'm waiting for that. Like I'm actually waiting for that next moment. Like yeah. what's gonna be like what's gonna be a moment that that rivals that, or where can I take a, a a routine moment and make it like that? Make the best of something like that. Right. Yeah. Love it. But it's. Love it, man. <laughs> Love it. I really enjoyed, I enjoyed seeing you, man. I'm happy for everything that you're involved in. I'm so excited about, you know, you're, having, you're going to be a great dad, your kid, and you brought back so many unbelievable memories for me, you know. Yeah, I, I appreciate it, man. Thank you so much. And, uh, yeah, hopefully maybe in the future we can do this again. Yeah, and, and I'll probably, with all your experience, you know, I don't know if this is for the for the viewers, but – you know, one of my goals on my wall is like, I think what I'm into now is besides my ethos is I would really like, you know, everything I've done, I've done, and you can put this out there. I don't care about that because it's the truth. St. Thomas has been the, the garden by which, I mean, I've been there half my life. Um, and I'm not looking to leave St. Thomas at all. Every year someone says, are you leaving St. Thomas? And I say, no. And the rumor goes out social media that I'm going somewhere else. I've I, I never looked for another job. I don't plan to look for another job. Um, but I am, I am, and, I, and I've dabbled in personal training and I've dabbled in venture travel and, and that it went from businesses to hobbies to business. But I really like to, like one of my life goals is to develop an online product, either a 
is it Kajobi or Kajabi or a class online or uh, you know a YouTube channel or I know you, you saw the where Eagles there you know maybe something for that for the um, the fifty year old demographic in terms of reinvention because I just read recently somewhere where it's like um, you know guys my age or not guys people my age women men whatever society's moving so fast we, and we're going to live such a longer time that there's that need for reinvention. There's that need for transformation. It's not like it's a luxury anymore. It's like, look, you know, you, you, look how fast education's changing with remote and virtual because of the pandemic. Um, you're going to have to be able to reinvent yourself. I would like to take what I've learned in football and in sports and in other areas and kind of like um, have an impact maybe in that, and I'm talking about meaningful reinvention where not like, um, I think a lot of people, I think, and I don't know, but in what I've read, I think a lot of people make a lot of money on saying they're the experts at reinvention where it's just things that are written in the book, not actual reinvention itself. They're just masters of selling the idea of reinvention. I, I'd like to, I think one of my goals in an online digital sense is to kind of like, and I'm not, listen, I'm not talking about, I don't know whether Tony Robbins is, has a lot of efficacy or not efficacy. I don't know if Timothy Ferris has efficacy or not efficacy. Um, I have no, I have no idea whether that's true or not. Um, but I'm talking about like, my idea was to showcase reinvention as like, like with my son, there's, no, I have a metric. This is what it is. Look, this is the number of pushups he can do in two minutes. Here, this is what you can do here, right? So I think I'm talking about reinvention. How fast can you learn something? Yeah. So that's what I'd like to do, like as a side deal uh, while I um, continue to work at St. Thomas and, and grow there. And so that's what I'm interested in. So maybe you can help me with that. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Let's definitely chat about that. Uh, it sounds yeah. awesome. Um, yeah. Great. Again. Hey, thank you so much. And uh, like I said, I'd love to do this again at some point too, because it sounds like you have just so much to share. That was the case 15, 20 years ago when I first met you. And it's certainly more so the case now. So well, I, think, I think you're going to be great at this. I think, I think this is, I think this is a home run for you. I appreciate it. Just what I'm hearing. I, I mean, like I tell my wife, like, like there's no reason. So what I heard here um, and what I've witnessed and how you the conversational tone you speak in there's no there's no difference performance wise between you or somebody else the only difference now is if you either get lucky or you expose yourself so much that you create your own luck so right. i tell my wife all the time my wife is this amazing yoga teacher like she's like unfreaking believable but yet and she wants to achieve a lot of success and she watches these yoga videos now on YouTube or whatever. She has her own YouTube channel now. Um, what is it? It's, uh, I'll get it for you. It's Lori B Yoga. I don't watch enough of it. Okay. But I'll, I'll send it to you. Um, and it, it's amazing. She's an amazing yoga teacher. Um, the, the, the deal now is, is for me, is how much, how much exposure can you get? And, and are you going to get that one moment of exposure? Right. You know, everything we're talking about here in terms of, were these moments of exposure I got. I got I got a couple of moments of exposure and happened to be in the right place at the right time to take advantage of, of what was gonna happen. 
and, create, right. and created that own luck. Cause I remember when you were texting me, you said how lucky you've been, but I think you created a lot of that luck. It, it's not yeah. like, yeah. And I'm sorry, I'm still searching for that right now. I'm searching for that. Like if I, if I go on another quest, hopefully I go on in a very healthy way and an unhealthy way. So I don't leave carnage in my wake. Um, <laughs> that I'll be able to, you know, achieve that online product or that online experience. Um, and either, maybe I'll win either way. Maybe I'll achieve my own transformations and that'll be the end result in itself, or I'll achieve them and I'll be able to share them. And that will be another episode. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So that's the deal. Awesome. All right, man. Thanks Rob. Yeah. We'll talk soon, man. Let's keep in touch too, man. I'd love to follow you. Absolutely. Let's do that. All right, man. All right, Good, Good luck with everything. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. All right. See you. If you're willing to make the sacrifice, send me. Make the sacrifice for your brothers. Repeat after me. And I heard the voice of the Lord. And I heard the voice of the Lord. Saying. Saying. Who shall I send? Who shall I send? Who will go for us? Who will go for us? And I said. And I said. Here am I. Here am I.